0: Episode number 58, Mary Kerr. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great, all right, color frost. Check. One, two, three, check. Stand by, please. House to half, house out, 11 keys, 1 through 10. 10. Welcome back to The Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am, of course, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time, I have an interview with the iconic Canadian designer, Mary Kerr. So, it's been a while since I released another episode of The Tuttle Block, and the world has changed, irrevocably. As we hunker down and eschew most physical connections, maybe we can turn to the past to get some small comfort and even some inspiration from what we've done and have witnessed as artists and audiences. Now I'm starting to get through the rest of my interviews from the West Coast and working on some more immediate projects to help share the story of the history of Canadian theatre design. It's important to remind everyone that if you find yourself in a tight financial spot and, and need support, the Actors Fund of Canada is there to help get you through it. And if you find yourself able to donate to the AFC, please go to afchelps.ca and support Canadian artists during this most troubling of times. Now my guest this time on the title block is the fantastic Mary Kerr. I met Mary in her home in Victoria in December of, gosh, 2018, and I am pleased to finally share this with you. Now, please go to the show notes at thetitleblock.com where I have some archival photographs of Mary's work on the Commonwealth Games in 1994 and Expo 86, uh, as well as the design for her iconic three-penny opera that debuted at the Banff Centre and Canadian Stage in the late 1980s. Uh, For more of Mary's portfolio, you can check out uh, Natalie Rewa's Sonography in Canada, which she is featured in. Now, this interview, yes, is a bit out of order, and I speak briefly of my interview with Robert Gardner that I will release over the next month. It's really important to note uh, that this conversation uh, in the second half that concerns the Commonwealth Games dips into the roots of indigenous performance and storytelling on the west coast of Turtle Island. I'm very aware that uh, we are two settlers talking about the cultural practices of the First Nations of the Pacific Northwest, specifically about the creation legend of the Quadilica clan. Now on this trip it was painfully obvious that I need to seek out and talk with designers and artists that work in this tradition and stop talking about them, and I guarantee this is a priority for me. Now I will also not be charging the wonderful supporters at Patreon.com while we all pause uh, in theatre in Canada. But I want to thank every one of them for your continuing and past support. Now, here's my interview with designer, Mary Kerr. Mary Kerr is a set and costume designer that's been working in Canadian theatre for many, many years. Uh, upwards of we think probably 45 years but Mm -hmm. as she says theater is the family business and she joins me today on the title block Mary welcome to the show
1: Thank you, thank S- you. So welcome to my home.
0: Oh yes, and I'm she. I'm here in lovely Victoria, B.C., uh, where Mary has invited me into her home to ask her all these very personal questions about her career. So I'm glad that she's uh, allowed me that opportunity. And I should say to everyone who's listening, uh, Mary has become a Patreon subscriber to the show. So I thank her for her support.
1: So join everyone. I- yes, indeed. If you uh, want this to happen, yeah, exactly. If you want us to have a history.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so Mary, how did you get started in theater? Because you had a non-traditional um, uh, training. You didn't go to theater school specifically. But I understand you started in theater and in this kind of theatrical lifestyle many years before. So tell me how you found your way there and, uh, and how, how theater became your life.
1: Well, I think it was simply because it was in the air in my family. Every spring for the dance recitals, the house would erupt into tutus and clown costumes and dancing horses, many of the things I've incorporated in my Toy Castle television series that I did, um, almost as a sentimental memory to the little girl I was at that time. I'm terribly sentimental. It's really silly. But Mum's dance school, uh, she just propped me against the rehearsal pianist, because they had a rehearsal pianist then. And I'd sit there and I'd, I'd hum and uh, she'd be doing tap dancing or this or that. And then I became her legs. I'd get up on the, I, um, in the studio and I would do it in reverse while she went around making corrections. So I'd have a class of 18-year-olds and I'd be this four-year-old. So I'm a really fast study. And mom used to take me to all the dance masters uh, conferences down in Chicago where they would be 500 people, 500 legs like me a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old on the floor learning a fast number in an hour. She'd get the radio, the record rather, she'd get the, the steps and I'd have it in my neurology. That was really fun. So I'm a fast study. Um, but the Playhouse Theatre in Winnipeg was a magical place mm-hmm. to me. And every spring we'd put on three or four shows there. And the Playhouse at that stage still had a hemp house mm-hmm. and it had footlights. Mm-hmm. And... That was magical to me. And at night when they were finished, they would they would do the whole thing about putting the light in the middle of the stage and I'd sit in the audience and look at it. As as I was waiting for mom to finish things sorry, finish things up and do stuff. Um, I'd just be sitting there watching this space and imagining. Or I'd sit on the stage and look out to the audience and imagine. I, it was such a magical place. And the dressing rooms downstairs and the side uh, aisles. And Mum would be on one side at the front wing, and I'd be at the other side doing the steps for the students because we never had a curtain come down. Mum was, was interesting. She was very inventive. And I think I got a lot of my courage from her about what to do on stage. And at 11, I started teaching baton twirling in the basement for 25 cents a lesson. I just was fascinated with baton twirling, not being a majorette, not the tits and teeth stuff. I was interested in the um, juggling quality. Things I see now in Cirque du Soleil, I laugh, you know, these fire batons and I did all that. And at one stage I lied about my age and became a blue bomberette, which was the halftime marching corps because Donna was the only one in town who did any of this stuff. And, uh, and I had, there was 50 of us, but they were all about 16, 17, 18. I was only 13, 14, but uh, I was a, I was a pretty developed girl at that point. And I just thought it'd be fun. And, um, so I did that for a few years, but every summer I'd go down to band camps in the States, in Milwaukee, in Chicago, in Minneapolis, and I'd learn rifle spinning and flag spinning and core marching and, and acrobatic and two baton and three baton. And, and I was really good, and I just loved it, but anyway, at 11, it was just beginning. And so I started teaching. I went around to every door in the neighborhood and said, "I'm going to give classes for 25 cents." You know And I had about seven students. And I think when I was 12, she let me start teaching up in the studio. And I had pom-pom cores. I had 50 girl pom-pom course that would work at the amateur football things I mean it's partly why when I did the Commonwealth games I'm so comfortable with designing for spectacle because I own that space <laughs> you know I've been a I've been a performer on that space and I'm comfortable there and um, but I just had such fun with all that and yeah you know, I taught tap dancing and things like that too but and I was a dan- I was the rear end of a dancing horse many a time sometimes the front end and I would make the horse and I'd make the eyes move and but so, yeah, I started in the studio, and I learned the family business. I learned enormous amount of discipline. Because every Saturday morning, we'd be packing up the telephone and the other stuff and go and start. And we'd, I'd, I'd be, at this point, say, let's say at university. And I'd be teaching all day Saturday and three or four days after school mm-hmm. and still getting my 45 hours of class, because I was in fine arts by then, mm-hmm. done. What it did was teach me an enormous, um, I guess I just was lucky. I had a lot of energy. I was really healthy. I got bronchitis twice a year. It was Winnipeg. But nonetheless, I was healthy. And uh, I, my mother taught me a really disciplined energy mm-hmm. and a real joy of sharing things with people mm-hmm. and a great respect for the audience. Yeah. I've often had really interesting questions with uh when I was in fine arts, and I'll get to how I got to fine arts, but I'd have questions with the artists and with some of the theater people I knew, and they'd say the actors would say, "Oh, I don't care if the audience cares." Like, I don't, you know, I'm doing art, and I'd say, "Well, I care. I don't understand that because if we're doing good art, the audience will be there, and we're doing it for an audience, and we have to pay for what we. I mean, for some reason, I guess all that practical stuff was in my mind because of what uh, I'd experienced since I was three. And then I designed the costumes for the shows. I have, I should show you, I have drawings of them, these little kid drawings. And I would do pencils and then we would put them on the Gestetner because it wasn't printers. And I'd figure out how to do it. And I'd be sitting there with the mothers and I'd be this 12 year old saying, Now, here's how you're going to do it. Because I I did all my own sewing and I, I sewed all my own clothing until I left home, which helped. I mean, it wasn't tailoring like, like a wonderful you know, April uh, Avril St- Stevenson or uh, some of the great cutters I've worked with could do. Eh, but I was not bad, you know. I could throw it together, and I, um, I basically could explain to them stuff. I, I, it's really funny. I don't know if I'm just hot wired for it, but I've always been able to understand space, and I've always been able to understand spatial relationships of of the body. And because I move and dance, and I love dancing, I used to want to go and be a Broadway dancer. But then I became five foot six, and I weighed 114 or 120 pounds. And they said, no, no, you're a horse. You can't, you're too, you're not tall enough, not thin enough. You, Or I wanted to be a ballet dancer. I, I studied at the Royal Winnipeg with Arnold Spore as a little fat kid when I was nine. And he'd go around with that big cane and right near my foot, you know, and I I sin- I later became friends with him when he was when he hired me to do big top ballet there, and I, I loved working for the Royal Winnipeg. But at the time, it was a it was a a strange learning, and I wasn't the right body, even no matter how many ballet books I read.
0: That's remarkable. But so so <clears> when you went to what made, what made you go to fine art school then? So you okay were, the way the way yeah. that
1: the way that worked was that um, they never knew what to do with me because I was drawing on the margins of all my my scribblers Mm -hmm. I'd finished the work in the class really fast and then I so I got really bored so they started putting me in mixed classes then they started jumping jumping classes for me um so I I actually finished up a little early and in grade 11 in Winnipeg you could go straight to first year university so I did that and I thought at that stage I was really intrigued with um fine arts and architecture and in grade seven, when I'd helped Miss Kreiderman do, um, she taught art. And I helped her one day in between classes prepare for the classes. Mm-hmm. And she gave me some clay. We'd done some clay. And she said, yeah, take some home and play with it if you want. So I did this sculpture and I brought it back to her and she said, you did that? Mm-hmm. And it looked like a little, I look at it now, I have it somewhere, a little and figure of someone sort of sitting there holding a pot between their knees and their hands with their mouth on the lid. And uh, it just kind of came out of my hands. And she, she did that kind of look at me, you know. And she, I, she said, what are you going to do when you get to grade 11? I said, I don't know. I was thinking of architecture. And she said, no, you're going to go with fine arts. <laughs> she said, here's a folder in a brochure, uh, you know. And she says, I'm taking night school right now. This is where you need to go. So I'll, I took it home to my parents and I said look what she, she showed me because they thought maybe teaching or something, you know, got really excited about that <laughs> and I sort of, so I had that thing almost like a a talisman for years but I, um, in grade 11 my dad's let me, he said well if you have, if you're an A student and I was a top student in Manitoba that year, he said I'll um, give you a free pass because there, Canada, you get free passes. So I went overseas, and that was the start of my first drawing sketchbook of traveling all over Europe. And and uh, God knows that they were confident enough to let me go. <laughs> but I bicycled all over, and I looked at art shows, and I saw some amazing musicals. I saw My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison on it. I saw Music Man with Cheetah Rivera. Um, I saw King Kong, the, the one this wonderful thing about a boxer, boxer, a musical from South Africa, and it had a moving escalator at the front. I thought, oh, that's neat. Um, so I, I was, and I saw art. I saw my first William Blakes. I walked into the National Gallery, and my parents had given me lots of books like Leonardo da Vinci, Fragonard, Ingres, you know, fairly realistic things. And, so, I just went and looked at the realistic. I went to Rembrandt, and the eyes followed me around the room, and I thought that was fascinating and i But, I ignored all the modernists mm-hmm. after the first year in art school, Of course, I went and I looked at those and came back and I was, well, why are you looking at those things These, you know it was really funny how you 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 educate your eyes, but that trip changed my life. We were not a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. we worked hard for our money, uh but we were never without. My granny lived with me and my uncle lived with us So I had, and I had two or three dogs. But what that meant was um, it gave me the education of a wealthy girl mm-hmm. because no one else was going and spending the whole summer in Europe. And I did this till I was 23. Mm-hmm. One of those years was totally instrumental, I guess, looking backward in me in the way I approached theater design and that was seeing David Hockney's Ubu Wah. It wasn't on that long. And my girlfriend had just graduated and was unhappy in London. Dad said, Well, here's a pass. Why don't you go and see her this weekend? I thought, That's a nice idea.
0: We should also mention that your dad was Ooh. a. sorry. Your dad was <laughs> a, scared a, me. Sorry about that. You, uh, your, your father was a pilot, right? was he? he no, for the he was an aeronautical engineer. Aeronautical engineer,
1: that's right. So he worked for Air Transport. So Canada or on weekends. Now, that's another influence that has affected my use of technical materials like corrugated steel and wood and mechanical things on stage and why my brain actually thinks quite systematically as well as imaginatively is that on the weekends he'd take me into the hangar Mm -hmm. and here would be the north stars and the dc nines and the constellations and stuff all taken apart the smell of gasoline was amazing and we'd walk through it and I'd look at all the rivets and the bolts and the metal and the I just loved it and uh, the men couldn't get over it. this kid wandering around because he did this since I was about four and I I was just so excited uh, about how things came apart and how they came together I mean that was today when we picked her up at the harbor. this was so neat to see um, a prop playing again and I stu- I, I I took my flying license at one stage on the little Cessnas. I never quite finished it, so I, and don't ask me to fly anything now. But I was just so interested in the idea of not having to follow the rules, not have to follow the highways. I wanted the overview, and that's a big symbol in my life. I always wanted the overview.
0: It, uh, it doesn't surprise me you became... The designer you are now, from all of those influences, I can see all of the themes in your life since we've been speaking for several hours here at your home, sort of coming together from there from your from your early uh, adulthood there. Um, the you also study medieval studies and architecture as well. Mm-hmm. yeah, so tell me the about way how, the way that worked was yeah.
1: that at the last minute I decided um, to go into the architecture school, not the fine arts. And I was there for a couple of years. And the biggest part of that was the art history classes, which did carry on when I went into fine arts, because they were buildings nearby and they were some courses we all shared. But they had this amazing library. And every day I was in that library pulling out every book I'd ever could see about structure and about design. Um, That was really quite something. But I was not good in the chemistry and the physics. And at one stage, and I failed those like minus two in chemistry. It was, a, it was a computer test, right? So I was just guessing. Well, and whereas I was getting A pluses in English and philosophy and French and, and you know, so the counselor said, "Darling, I think maybe you should think of going into fine arts because if you fail another year, you're out." Mm. I was shocked because uh, you know I was the top student in my mind. Mm. <laughs> But she was right. I also was very excited in the first years of university. I was a, I wrote for the Manitoba. And I was in this. I was in that. I did sketches. I, I taught. I probably did far too much. I sat in on other class. I was just so excited about being in a university community of people who want to talk about ideas, um, because I'd grown up in Silver Heights where, the biggest thing was: Have you done your nails today? Are we going to the bowling alley? Let's hang around the pharmacy. What do you mean you're going home to practice the piano? Because So I was in the architecture, fascinating, but I moved sideways into fine arts, (coughs) excuse me, and um, what I loved about the Bachelor of Fine Arts honors was that I could, I fell in love with English. I had an amazing teacher, uh, Judy Flynn, Dr. Judy Flynn, who (laughs) didn't suffer fools, (laughs) And she came into our first class. She always denies that she said this, but I know it was true because it just shocked me. Came into our first class, pixie haircut, wearing, we had to wear black gowns at St. John's because it was an Anglican college. And, um, and she threw her books down, quite pregnant. And she sort of said, I'm a graduate student. I'm working on my, I think it was her PhD. And she says, I don't want to teach you, but they're making me teach you. And you don't know anything. So I expect you all to just be quiet for the first term and listen and then the second term I might let you ask questions and if you don't want that get out now and then she left the room and the whole room was in shock right some of us stayed and moved up to the front row and others left she's still a good friend and still inspiration but because of her I ended up taking about five or six English courses that I wasn't supposed to take as a visual so I took a, a kind of a combined course and when I graduated, actually, the, um, the dean wanted me to go to Oxford for English, and I wanted to go to Yale for sculpture. So it was like a, they were both at a fairly high level. And I say this only because it's something I really believe designers need to be an equal to talk to their directors. I think you need to be on equal grounds. And that might mean, if it's drama you're interested in or music, that you actually trained in those areas so that you can be a good collaborator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the art school was wonderful for me. I, we did nine hours of drawing a week. Uh, we did, I think, four hours of history. Uh, it just went on and on for four years. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm.
0: So how on earth did you uh, make it to theater? Well, I mean, all the, all, all the elements are there. Yeah. But you're so far... Not there. You're not there. You're not working in professional theater or working with professional like, directors or writers or other people. Well, designers. the image
1: I use to my students now whenever I'm talking about what is theater, I said it's a wheel. And each spoke... I said theater is not a, a, an art in itself. It's a combination, a collaboration of arts. And each spoke, like writing, uh, art, movement... Music, philosophy, psychology, all these different spokes come together into the hub, which can be whatever you're doing. And if it comes together well, the wheel turns. If it doesn't, it's broken. Um, I think I was just gathering all my spokes. And I remember in fourth year, a friend, Colin Gorey, who's now in England producing big music festivals, he was an architect and he was also like directing. So he said, could you give me some designs for Madwoman of Shiloh? Mm-hmm. So I just did a few drawings. I had no comprehension other than they had to find. Them. He just wanted some looks. Mm-hmm. And then, and so there were two shows in Winnipeg and the other one was uh, Three Cuckles and Stephen Caney, who became quite a director down at the Guthrie, mm-hmm. uh, had me do it for theater across the street. The other thing is, John Hirsch was in Winnipeg at that time. He's one of the biggest influences in my sense of theatricality as well. He brought Brecht and Weill to Winnipeg. He believed, as an artistic director, that he could bring an audience along and educate them, not just do crap, you know, like things they'd accept, but to stretch them and to move them and to ask them to go somewhere and... He, I took acting classes from him when I was eight, when he first came over as a Hungarian refugee from the Holocaust. I was on his TV show as a kid. I mean, we, we, we became friends. And we nearly worked together once on a show called Vaudeville at Canadian Stage, but then he got something in New York, and it, it canceled. But at the end of his life, when he was so ill, because he got AIDS too, and Stephen and he were good friends as well. So we often Stephen and I went over there, and Stephen counseled him.
0: This is sorry. This is Stephen Katz. Stephen Katz, yeah. the
1: great Stephen Katz, who died in I think it was eighty eight or eighty nine of AIDS, and and who we did we did ten shows together. And I wouldn't be in theater if it wasn't for Stephen. But we would be at John's place, and uh, and he gave me the famous comments: "Lots of fame, lots of glory, no money, eh, Mary?" Mm-hmm. Like for being in theater is the thing. But uh, he, like Stephen, was furious because they had so much more to say and do with their lives. But that's a that's an aside. But he was at his one of his prime peaks of exploration at Manitoba Theatre Centre at that time, and I saw his mother courage with Len Carew as the soldier, um, Martha H- Henry as the young girl, Francis Highland as the as the other uh, the the girl on the roof mm-hmm. douglas rain as the cook and siobhan oh what is it is it Mc- she's the one from australia okay. that really great actress playing mother courage and i think who did the design but he directed i have sketches because mm-hmm. i was a student and they let me come into the dress rehearsals and sketch mm-hmm. by the light of the little light on this on the things and so I have these wonderful sketches of all the people, like working. Mm-hmm. I was just dumbfounded. I had never encountered Brecht. I had never encountered that music. And she'd be sing- trying to sing, you know, da 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 da, and she's shit. I can't get it. And it was, it was this was in rehearsal, right? Mm-hmm. Now, darling, you just do this. Now you're okay. All right, I'll try it again. And. Then I got nearly every boyfriend I had to take me. I went about eight times. I wrote down all the musical lyrics. I mean, it just had such an effect on me. Not the design, particularly. It was fairly traditional Stratford stuff, you know, broken down British approach. Uh, It was beautiful. It was fine. (coughs) But what I was taken with was the direction, the movement of the people, and the brilliance of the actors. And I've since know enough to know that some people say, you actually saw that, you know. (laughs) It was one of those great moments in Canadian theatre, and I was lucky enough. I've been really lucky, I have to say, just as an overview. I have been so blessed and lucky in my lifetime. When I had to choose, in a way, between going back to my sculpture, carrying on with with theatre design, I realized i 'd rather reach more people than maybe thirty people in a gallery show and um, and I was an interesting sculptor. The Canada council said I should carry on they 'd give me grants. but there was something about it being too private but so those little things happened. then I went off to. Uh, I actually applied to Yale and to Philadelphia and to, uh, where was the other one? I think it was Central St. Martin's. Um, and I got grants in all of them, but my then-fiancé didn't. He got one for Waterloo. So we went to Waterloo. But Waterloo was doing, it was the best thing, because Waterloo was doing a very experimental course called a Master of Applied Science in Design where we developed, we worked with computers. I learned how to program Fortran. I was one of the first women in Canada to learn how to work on these things. Yeah. I hated it. It wasn't, but as they said, it was all engineers and uh, um, product designers and architects and me, the one artist. <laughs> and we tried, the main thing we were trying, because they were, it was the first year this course was taken. We got huge scholarships. And they, they really wanted to explore the design process through a scientific model. And they've since carried on with all of that. The, that course turned into the architecture school, uh, I gather. And uh, we had to figure out the 10 design steps, processes in, the te- in design. What are the 10 steps? And we all agreed on the first eight. And then at nine, I said, and then you make a creative leap. And they all went, <laughs> what is a creative leap? because suddenly I was the flake, right? The flake in the room. And a woman, God help us, because I was the only woman in the course. There was about eight of us. It was a very specialized little thing. And we studied McLuhan, we studied cybernetics, we studied uh, synchronicity, we studied computers. It was the only place in Canada, actually, that you could do this. And, oh, I've forgotten. What I also took as a directed study was a course in modern theater. With Doctor Larry Cummings, and he ran a group called Saint Ethelwald's Players, mm. a medieval group, and that's where I met Paul Frappier, who played this great Herod. Mm-hmm. And he, we took—he was amazing because he opened me up to Beckett and to um, UNESCO and all these amazing people that I thought, oh, I didn't know theater could be that. Mm-hmm. So Saint Ethelwald's Players was really fun. I did it all with felt and glued together, and mm. and whatever. But I didn't think anything more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was just something I was doing at the time. Um, and then I went on to, we moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. And I never finished the degree in Waterloo because um, I'd, this whiplash I had when I first graduated that I told you about uh, had gotten worse and worse. And it was very hard to study. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I think I was in a depression. Mm-hmm. I'd sit in the, in the in, and I'd just gotten married. We'd gotten married there. That spring, and I think I just sat in my room and listened to Prokofiev's music for Romeo and Juliet and cried. And in retrospect, <laughs> I think that was a depression. Um, we went to Toronto, and I registered in graduate school to do a makeup here so I could go into the medieval center. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, I was fine mm-hmm. <laughs> because suddenly I was talking to people mm-hmm. and having people to talk to and. Because I just love sitting over coffee and talking and thinking of ideas and things. And in the medieval center, this wonderful woman, Dr. Alexandra Johnson, taught us Chaucer. And I thought, this is so much fun. Chaucer is really a theater guy. He's humorous. He's funny. He's And humor seems to be one of the strands as I'm trying to think about what mattered to me in my career lately? This project with Stephen Katz and myself uh, going—I've—I've I've contacted a lot of our old friends and a lot of actors. I've gone through all the programs. Do you have anything you could say about Stephen or about our shows? You know, because I don't think people realize how unusual they were. Uh, today, they don't realize, and I want people to remember him. But where did you guys meet? We met at the graduate school because I had, in the medieval center, I was taking a course with Professor Lyalli, which Professor Lyalli's seminar group was what the PLS was modified from. They said it was just the Society for Drinking and Cups. But if we were taking this course on medieval theater uh, around a table, about eight of us, we had to put on a show Mm -hmm. in this class. So we put on Secunda Pastorum, and it was sort of along the lines of how medieval towns work. Mm -hmm. If you were really bossy, you'd be the director. (laughs) If you were a good town speaker, you'd be the actor. And if you could sew and draw, you were the designer. So that's how the lines broke up. So I designed this. It was really nothing, but my Mary had a halo of baby's breath. Mm -hmm. And the baby had uh, a rainbow halo. Mm -hmm. And I had this... Annunciation Angel which was all covered in silver and had huge wings mm-hmm. and uh, we just put it on at Hart House and everyone kind of went just within the medieval centre mm-hmm. and within the next week or two I was asked to do the Digby play of Mary Magdalene with Reiner Zauer which was going on at uh, Westminster United down Cross, from where the old National Ballet used to be and Toronto Dance Theatre was dancing the harrowing angels and the harrowing and the Seven Deadly Sins, and it was amazing, I mean, hundreds, there were so many costumes, so I just had all these wives of people at the center, so, and I did big drawings, and I had parties, because at that stage I had a lot of architecture friends and lawyer friends, and because my husband, my first husband, who was an architect, uh, we went with a pretty fast group, and pretty wealthy group, Mm -hmm. and from he was working with Ron Tom and you know designing for them and stuff and it was quite interesting because I take these big drawings I have a big meal and then I'd sit them all down when they were kind of drunk and I put them all on the floor and I'd say okay who wants to do (laughs) one? because a lot of them were artists right and so Sheila would say well I'll paint the Annunciation Angel with all the wings that'd be fun and someone else said well I'll do the the one of the the this because that'll be fun and I'll do the I cut out all the Seven Deadly Sins. Jackie Burroughs was one of the... She played Lust. And the concept was that they just wear body stockings with really grotesque makeup, and they had plastic pretty faces, and I put them in rainbow, three or four shades of red, three or four shades of yellow. You know, Sloth was yellow. Envy was green. And in Renaissance costumes, transparently, so you could see all the body parts underneath, but they looked beautiful to Mary and as Curiosity, who was dressed like a peacock with all the colors and a kind of a renaissance splendor. Because these weren't that conceptual, they were sort of conceptual, but they were sort of realistic. Mm -hmm. Most of my conceptual work starts with realism. Mm -hmm. And they would dance around her in a beautiful drumbeat dance, this was Toronto Dance here, Mm -hmm. with the masks. And they'd look at her and they'd be beautiful. And they'd look at the audience and they'd be devils. Mm -hmm. And she was fascinated with them, because that's what curiosity is. Yeah. But as they wound her into their net, they would do a strip, and all the clothes would come off. And Jackie did a real burlesque strip, mm-hmm. until they were just writhing around her like snakes. It was so interesting. It was a good group to work with. And Trish Beatty said, well, I'll play Despair. And I said... That be an eighth sin. There is no sin called despair, and she says there is if you want my dance group. <laughs> I went okay because <laughs> I was definitely the ju- the junior here.
0: Can you can you just give us an idea what year this was as well? Oh, gosh, if you can you remember?
1: Sixty nine seventy. Okay, yeah, somewhere in there. That's what I thought. Okay, uh, somewhere in there, and uh, but it was very. Keith Urban and different dancers you probably, Emilia because you wouldn't know, but they were all wonderful dancers with Toronto Dance. Astrid would know them all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with a huge I, I, I felt like creatures with wings. And he sort of came down the center aisle and and my Satan was dressed like a Medici prince, mm-hmm. Gaza Kovac, amazing actor, with a set of pearls and hair out and long he was like a strange bat with huge renaissance sleeves in black velvet and the world because we had the world the flesh and the devil of course i've got that cape downstairs and it had all my symbolism of the sun and the moon on one side and um the flesh was funny it was just all big penises and grapes people were all <laughs> and the devil so that you know it was it was medieval i just love medieval for some reason the Middle Ages is something that's always felt really interesting to me. Christine de Pizan's writings and Eloise and Abelard and Chaucer, I just I loved it. Anyway, and then they asked me to do another one called Um A Herod, and it went to the PMLA conferences and it also went down to the States. And Glenn Wickham, who was the the medieval scholar and wrote the big book on medieval theatre. Mm-hmm was at it, and he said it was one of the most interesting interpretations he'd ever seen. And he didn't mean interesting in a bad sense. Mm-hmm. He meant, no, no, it's, it would have been the way a village had done it, but because all they ever were doing before I got in there was sackcloth and burlap and mm-hmm. and felt things. And But for some reason, I did, the Herod was all done from the Duke de Berry's Tres Rishers, mm-hmm. And he came in on a huge horse, Herod, with that we wheeled in, and there was two Hellmouth and a ro- uh, tree at the top of Jesse, and Kate Nelligan played both the Devil and Mary. Mm-hmm. R. H. Thompson was in it as a harrowing soldier. Right. Bronwyn Draney was mm-hmm. there as a as a woman. Uh, Skip Shand was uh, he directed it, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, but those were the three shows that brought me to the intention of uh, Professor Brian Parker, who ran the theater department. Mm-hmm. They did not have a practical theater department the way we do at UVic or uh, at York or whatever, but it was more of a theoretical. Mm-hmm. But he had a student, he said, who was really brilliant and had done a very interesting interpretation of measure for measure. Mm-hmm. And he wondered if putting the two of us together might be an interesting show at Harthouse. Mm-hmm. That was Stephen. Mm-hmm. And we met at the buttery. And uh, I said, "Oh sure," because by that stage I was having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I did go to Professor Lierly and say, "Look, I haven't written my paper on theater, but I've designed two of your show, three of your shows. Mm-hmm. Couldn't you give me a credit?" "Oh no, you have." So I've never got my degree in medieval studies either. <laughs> that that bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd just done these three big shows all in one year. Yeah. Anyway, so we met in the buttery and uh, and I'm writing about this because I'm trying, I'm really interested in people not forgetting who Stephen Katz was. Stephen Katz was Robert Lepage at the time and uh, we were a very interesting team, but I came in and here was this little guy in overalls and uh, a long beard and bandana around his head smoking ferociously and we met and he... He had seen my shows, and I guess that's why he was also interested. But he was just... He'd never directed. I don't think he directed anything before that either. So it was a meeting of... Yeah. And... Um, but he... Stephen was also very visual, and he was also a designer. So he, he had designed the set for this already. So it would be costumes I'd be doing. Mm-hmm. And he's probably one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met. And... I just couldn't believe his parents were both writers, Sid Katz and Dorothy Katz. Sid used, Sidney Katz used to write for Maclean's all the time and exposés and things. So it was a very intellectual family, a bit like Danny Grossman's. The mother was Protestant, the father was Jewish, and there was this wonderful clash of things. Um, but anyway, he, he so he said, "Okay, these are the characters from Measure for Measure. I'd, I, I'd like us to do it in uh, '60s or '70s." Early sort of hippie mod, like now. Mm-hmm. And I've added these different characters because he always would add <laughs> characters and bookends and in and things entre acts, mm-hmm. which I didn't. Hey, sure, fine. I'm a dance recital girl. You know, <laughs> that's fine. And uh, so we went through it all, and he says, "Oh, and they, you know, this one is wearing a green dress with red buttons, and he walks with a limp, and this is it. he had he had it all designed, and I wrote down everything." I don't know, what I just wrote down everything and listened. Mm-hmm. And I went away, and I think I, I, I'm a pretty fast design when I do ideas Because as soon as someone starts to talk to me, if it's the right thing, I see images. Mm-hmm. I just see, I mean, it sounds terrible if you say visions, but I see images. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I don't, I actually turn a show down. Mm-hmm. It's my little checkpoint if someone says, I did, and I went away. Thought about it, did some designs, brought them back. They were all totally different than what he'd asked for. But the what he told me that was so important was the spirit of what was in his mind. And they were pretty fully, they were completely designed. (laughs) They were drawn, they were colored, they were everything. They were all about 12 by 8. And and I saw some the other day because someone took pictures of them from my collection at the Metro Toronto Library. I hadn't seen them for years. And this person who did it is a, is a young director uh, or former, uh, like he's not, not that young anymore, but he's one of my former students. And he sort of went, these are really contemporary, you know, because other than the fabrics they were made of because you had no money, you could do these today and it'd be really fresh. He was really shocked. I said, but good ideas don't get, don't get dated, really. Uh, anyway, I, I showed them to him. And here was Stephen. And I was just dying, right? Because I knew it was different than what he'd asked for. He was uh, what I'm doing, folks, is I'm smoking and turning pages <laughs> as I as I sit there trembling in front of him at the buttery at St. John's or at uh, yeah St. John's and um, Trinity. And I uh, and then he, clo- he and he sat there for a minute smoking. He said, "It's perfect. It's what I always wanted." <laughs> Hew, I said and then we were off and running as at first it was just his working friends and then it became his close friends and then towards the end of his life he was my uh, date uh, I was a, a Dora juror for the small theaters most people didn't know he had AIDS and he wouldn't let me tell people I mean after a while you could tell but it was a time when it was, everyone was terrified right and he knew where he got it in New York, he told me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was, but he. And so I got two tickets to go to about 72 small theater things. Mm-hmm. And because I, both of us had come in small theater, and I'd certainly grown up in small theater, I didn't, I didn't go to a theater school. I didn't go to Stratford. You know, I wasn't trained as an assistant. I've never been an assistant in my life. Um, that's not bad or good. It just hasn't been, and except maybe to my mom. And um, so I said, do you want to be my date? Because he was getting poorer and poorer as well. Mm -hmm. I think his parents actually did some mortgages on the house to help support him through the last few years. And it was the most transformative time in my life because not only did I have my friend with me, um, but for two or three times a week we went to a show. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go out afterwards and have coffee and he'd tell me what the show was about at his very high level of understanding. And I just listen, you know. (laughs) Uh, And someone once said, why don't you ever want to direct Mary? And I'd say, because I've always been blessed with really interesting directors. Mm -hmm. And as long as they keep asking me questions I can't answer, I'm quite happy to let them direct Mm -hmm. because I'm not trying to be uh, Robert Wilson, although that'd be fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I admire him a lot. Um, And I know why he's doing that. I know why Ockham Fryer, one of my great... The German designer, producer, writer, artist at eighty-six started his own company so he could get his ideas out. I get that, mm-hmm. but with Stephen, it was. Uh, I'm looking back at our correspondences and Janet Bickford, a great friend of Stephen's, who lives in Vancouver, who was a, who built props on a lot of our shows and was she li- he lived at her house when he was out there with the Playhouse, assisting Christopher Newton as his. I think he was doing a traveling group from there. And at that time, Don Shipley and Brian Richmond were all there, too. And Edgar Dobie, who runs the uh, Arena Theater in Washington, was a carpenter. I mean, this is the funny part about all this stuff. We were all babies doing things. And um, where, did I, where was I going on that?
0: At the year of Dora... You saw every play. And he was oh, t- yes, sorry. He was t- and t- yeah. here we
1: went around. For oh, the-
0: and, and sorry, What do you remember, The again, the time period of this? What year was this approximately? It must have
1: been 88 or 89. Yeah, right, right, just before he died. I yeah. mean, I was also doing um, uh, Three Penny Opera at that point. Yeah. I was doing some of my biggest shows at that point.
0: I was going to say, because you're like you, at this point, you had done a number of huge projects.
1: Yeah, I was really lucky.
0: And yet, here you are going to all the small theater and t- saying that you'd learned still so much about doing theater i
1: think it's i don't think it open, ever stops yeah, i mean sadly. when my students if i present anything that i'm saying i'm stuck with or i'm having trouble with or i'm worried about in terms of something i'm designing or something i'm thinking about they say but how can that be so you've done this for quite a while you should i said well finding the right solution for any artistic enterprise whether it's a drawing or it's a huge ballet is never easy. Sometimes it comes like this, and sometimes you work hard at it. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't questioning, you're not doing your job. Mm -hmm. If you aren't collaborating, if you aren't being stimulated by other things that are coming into the factor, if you're just repeating things you've already done, why bother? Mm -hmm. Bricklayers earn much more than we're gonna earn. Mm -hmm. Let's do that as repetitive repetitive action. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, there's gotta be some fun. And the fun for me is that, I mean, anyway, Stephen and I would do this, and uh, one of the regrets of my life is, it still bothers me, is that I was up for a Dora, for a couple of Doras for for a three-penny opera that year, and I brought him as my date. Mm -hmm. And I had this elaborate speech that if I won anything, Mm -hmm. I was going to do a dedication to him, because he was nearly dead, he was dying. And I got up there, I got so flustered, thanking all the people that had worked with me, that mm-hmm. I didn't thank him. Mm-hmm. And that would have been the moment to have given him that honor, because all the shows we did were pre-Doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they would have won, them, yeah. because they were interesting yeah. and experimental. I mean, we did a nine-man Pericles mm-hmm. in 69 at the Glenmores Church. Mm-hmm. David Klausner was in it. And it was all done with garbage and kitchenware and odd things. And each country he went to was a different time period and a different color so that people had hair made out of sponges and garbage bags. I mean, for some reason, I like doing that. I'm a sculptor. It was fun. And uh, I think it was Nathan Cohn, or was it Erjo, said it was more interesting than the one at Stratford that summer. Stephen was really good he did the set for that too but Nine Men I mean I, I listen and with, with laughter to all this confusion about cross-dressing and, and cross-casting and he did that right off the bat and I don't say we did it because that was purely him and I followed along happily tail wagging and, oh boy this is fun um, I have far more opinionated approaches now but mm-hmm. but at the time If I have a director that's well, he was. My mother married my father because she could follow him when they were dancing. She was a really good dancer, and most men dancing with her when they'd hear she was a dance teacher would start to stumble over their feet. Dad, it didn't bother. He just said, "Great," and kept dancing. (laughs) And and for me, I need a good dance partner. I'm a really good dancer, and I need an equal. And if I have an equal, I am so willing to be a handmaiden or to be a, a certainly a collaborator. I won't be. I won't put my elbows out and be pushy. If I don't, I'll I'll envision the whole damn thing, mm-hmm. and they'll stage my shows. Mm-hmm. And I, Brian Richmond laughs about that because we're teaching a course right now about the director designer relationship that we fought to have in for a long time. Mm-hmm. Because I, it's a real bet noir for me that directors aren't trained as thoroughly as designers. Mm-hmm. With a few major exceptions, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, I don't mean that to sound um, hoity-toity. But I think every designer will nod their heads when they're saying this. that How come we're the ones that are supposed to know how to read a script, how to understand the psychological implications of this, that, and the other thing, how to understand space and this, and the director doesn't know I have to have any visual memory? Mm -hmm. You see, Stephen did. He was lovely to work with for that reason. And Grossman did, too, or was willing to be introduced to topics if he wasn't familiar with them. Yeah. My early meetings with directors, once I started doing things with with people other than Stephen, and, and I certainly did right away, uh, was basically I'd have them at my house, because we didn't have computers then, and I I'd, I'd just pull out books and say what about if we worked with this kind of a idea or style? Or do you like? Because I, I did an awful lot of instruction. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't because I thought my way was right. It's just I had a larger grocery store to pull from than they did. And did they want to play this way? Mm-hmm. There's only one director that I ever that could, I couldn't work with. We were talking about people we can and we can't, and that was Paul Bettis. Mm-hmm. And Stephen was supposed to have designed that show, and he gave me to Paul instead. It was just way at the beginning when we were doing these things. And um, it was Lee Just. And I thought, I did some really nice period drawings for him, and you know, just for costumes. And we just couldn't connect. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work, and I kept... So finally, I, I said to Stephen, I said, I don't know what's wrong. I I really like him. He's so intelligent. I love the work he does. But I, I just get the feeling he, he doesn't like me or doesn't like my work or something. Could you find out what's going on? Because I said, I'm fine. If, if he doesn't want to work with me, I'm fine. I just don't want this feeling because I'm not used to that. I, I didn't have any experience, right? Came back and said, no, it's not your problem. You're just the wrong sex. <laughs> So I said, Oh, is that all? He said, No, it isn't the drawings. It isn't the design. (laughs) And I said, Thank you for being so candid. I mean, and I don't mean that in any way against Paul. It was just, it, it does speak, though, about how much a director and designer have to trust each other.
0: And while we're on that, tell me about Danny Grossman and how you first oh. started working with him. We've talked about um, TDT and uh, with Astrid mm-hmm. um, and with Luscombe, yeah, yeah, and with TW, yeah, with Toronto Workshop Productions and Toronto Dance Theater. But uh, Danny Grossman is again, t- until you mentioned him today, I had I had forgotten about the great body of work. That he, had, um, that he had produced, and I had it's not thought about, about it for a while. Like, like, tell me about when you guys first met and when you started working together. And
1: Well, that was a bit like the meeting with Stephen. Mm-hmm. I've been very—I uh, don't mean this in a religious sense. I've been very blessed with certain people I've run into. This was a, a funny thing. I had—because um, of my background as a dancer, and because I have done so much dancing— and because I'm a sculptor and I think of the body in movement, mm. and I hate leotards, mm. um, I found that I, I went to the National Ballet and met Jerry Eldred, who was running it at that point. And he loved my work. And the, he was so great. He said, I think we've got to get something going where we're working, and this is with young choreographers and designers. Mm. He said, I want you to apply for a Canada Council grant to say you want to transition from theater design to to doing some dance design. Mm-hmm. And with that money, you can come and work with Anne Ditchburn, James Kadelka, John Elaine, and who was the other one? There was four of them who were working at being potential. They were members of the core, uh, or soloists, who were working at being uh, potential choreographers. He was so advanced in thinking of how to develop choreographers who were Canadian designers who were Canadian I think I was the only designer that was part of this but maybe because I was uppity enough to go and meet him and he sent me to New York to meet Ming Cho Lee the first time Danny and I went there to do a show and Ming Cho Lee was I spent two days with him and he said oh you, you should come here you could certainly compete here no problem at all And that's when I met Bob Fosse, and he wanted to work with me. We spent four hours together, and then he died. But sometimes that happens, too. People just die. Um, But anyway, how that happened was one of the choreographers he wanted me to meet was Danny Grossman. And Danny had just been dancing with Toronto Dance Theatre as a guest and decided he wanted to live here. He and his partner, Jermaine, who just died two years ago? After being together for was it fifty six years, they were he cruised him in Central Park, Jermaine <laughs> cruised Danny, and I said okay, and I had gone to um, a party where someone pointed out that's Danny Grossman, and so I didn't approach him there. But Gary said no 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 he's just done this new piece that he's working on with Judy Candon. Who came up from the States, who's a psychologist? None of his early, none of us at the beginning were anything to do with what real dancers or designers were. We were just people who believed mm-hmm. and uh, believed in this kind of experimentation. But I went up to York, middle of winter, and he did the first exercises on the ladder, mm-hmm. the ladder piece. And, but it wasn't white then, and it, she didn't ever, I mean, I designed those parts, but it was just, the ladder and the chair and the two of them and let's go get stoned the music. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard I mean I'd just seen the Martha Graham stuff right? Mm-hmm. which I never really liked although I loved Noguchi's um, and I never saw anything Astrid had designed so that doesn't infer anything about Astrid's work um, and I liked Noguchi's design for Martha's original stuff but I, I there was something so now about what Danny was doing, something so Angry, funny, because mm-hmm. humor is a big thing with his work too, as was with Stephen, is mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, anyway, I, I schlepped all the way up to York in the middle of winter in the snow, and I on a on the bus and on the you know, and I sat there and I watched it, and and there were other people doing other things, which and because uh, I was fairly educated about dance, and then uh, and he did this, and I was just, I was. Just mesmerized. I thought, if I'm not a bad dancer, but if I could dance like he moves the way I would if I could be him. <laughs> it was like such an immediate, it was sort of like listening to Stephen talk, mm-hmm. but it was listening to Danny talk with his body. And I went, oh. I didn't swear then, but it would be holy shit, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I was just like, okay, he's the one and went back to the bus stop, and there was Danny sitting in the bus stop. And it was just like that. Mm -hmm. Old karmic thing, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, We started talking, and at the end of the two hours waiting for the bus and freezing to death, we talked about how our dance company would have people in it that were all shapes and sizes, Mm -hmm. some fat, some crippled, they could be in wheelchairs, everyone needs to dance in the world, everyone needs to move, none of, he said, Ballet training is really good for the da- even the modern dancer, but it's not about our society or our culture today. And so, we just It certainly exploded my brain, and we both then went da- and then I I started going to the surf shops with them, and that designing that first show, the one on the ladder, was more work than anything else we ever did because you say, you want to put red on her legs. Because it was different than what Paul Taylor had done and he'd been principal dancer with Paul mm-hmm. and the most athletic. The things he could do, because I mean, Danny had a too long torso, shorter legs, a horsey face. Mm-hmm. I I mean, as he said, he's all the things a classical ballet dancer isn't supposed to be, which is what I loved about it mm-hmm. and about him. And everyone in his company that eventually joined. Eric was the next one. He was a com- was it Eric or Greg? He was a computer programmer and then there was a uh another guy who was another kid and they came from the states because they were following little things they'd seen like it was almost like the pied piper Mm. and we were all working for nothing Mm -hmm. the other thing that was amazing about danny is that when he did get some money he had a very strong belief that dancers should not just be shopped out and then put on poji you know in between That in order to feel like a true artist, you had to be with your company totally. And in order for the choreographer to be able to use you as, as the, the models and the structure of his thinking, his choreographic thinking, mm-hmm. you had to be there full time. Mm-hmm. So he gave all the salary to his, his dancers. He lived in almost poverty. I mean, if you went to visit Jermaine and Danny, they had a grand piano and a bed. And that was it. There was no other furniture. And uh Danny's just amazing. And and anyway we and then we He says, But I have to wear these kind of shoes because I have to get up on my toes and I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to have knee pads because I'm on my knees a lot and I don't want to break them. And so there was a lot of constrictions and and uh we did that and then we did uh we went on to do 28 pieces together mm-hmm. one of them at the Paris Opera mm-hmm. Ballet because Nereev had seen Danny's work and thought he'd be good to be brought over for this Stockhausen thing and Eric Brunn who of course was Nereev's partner uh, had seen my work and said well you should bring Mary then too mm-hmm. and but you know I've never been very professionally oriented I mean that was in 83, mm. and it was an enormous hit, uh, our part of the thing, and uh, so was Karen Armitage, she did one too, mm-hmm. Carol Armitage, and there was a couple of older ones from Denmark, but we were the new group. Yeah. And the head of the Paris Opera, uh, she, the woman who ran it, and the man, both loved me, said, I will introduce you to all the opera houses of, of Europe, mm-hmm. I will do this, do that, you know. And I said, oh, no, I'm going off to New Zealand. My fiancé, you know. I mean, I, I, was out, I would always turn things down depending on where my heart was at the time, you know. And, of course, that one is the man I'm married to now, and we've been together since 83. But we met in Greece on the Acropolis. I was coming back from Prague. And, uh, I mean, that's how all those kind of synchronicities happen.
0: All right, so let's just, um, d- as a couple examples, just to sort of finish up this period in the 1970s with Stephen Katz, uh, your work at the Vancouver Playhouse, where Christopher Newton was uh, artistic director, uh, Mandragola and Caucasian Chalk Circle. So t- first of all, Mandragola, tell us about why this was, these were remarkable productions that were lauded at the time. Tell me how they changed people's perspective on, you know, what, th- what theater could be and and uh, maybe through Christopher Newton's eyes, like what what was your what was your approach and why were these important works?
1: Well, uh, Christopher Newton uh, was the artistic director, and Cameron Porterius was the um, design director. And Chris, I think Stephen was out there working with them as an assistant to the director or another uh, part of it. There it, it was a lot of interesting people out there, and Christopher came to Toronto, and Stephen wanted him to meet me and to look at my portfolio. We had not been allowed on the stages of our own theater, our own regionals. Uh, And Stephen and I were not associated with Pass Mirai or TWP. We did a couple of shows at Tarragon, but uh, we were not um, company people. Mm -hmm. We worked quite independently, and uh, he dramaturged a lot of things. He actually designed sets in a lot of the smaller theaters as well, at the same time as we were developing our ten shows. But he just wanted us to work together, and he introduced us, and Christopher, bless him, uh, looked at my work and said, yes, I think that would be good. I think you should come out and do Mm Mandragola. So I was thrilled. I'd never worked in a big theater like that, and... I'd never designed a rake, but I decided there was going to be a rake, and there was forced perspective, so I had to bring back all my old drafting ideas, and and it was uh, the whole set was like marquetry. I was sort of a because of my art history background and my love of the Renaissance, Lorenzo de Medici. I love Lorenzo de Medici. I wish I'd known him, and and the medieval. Both of those were things that were a strength for me, but we abstracted them as well. And Stephen was renowned for rewriting things. This was by Machiavelli, right? Mm-hmm. So we had it on the thrust, and there was a huge, the big, what's it called? It's in Rome. It's the, it's the floor that Michelangelo did up on the hill. It's a big geometric with wonderful ellipses. Okay. And so we reproduced that mm-hmm. on the floor, and that had scallop-shell footlights and the clothing was in the style of Isabella d'Este, like fifteen ten, fifteen twenty. So the silhouettes were definitely that style, but they were interpreted with a lot of texture and fabric in the sense of knitting, crocheting, bows. Uh, there was I was a redhead. I always like to put a redhead in the show, and um, and the three Zanies who were all the colors of the rainbow and would come and move furniture and change because Stephen. Both Mandragola and Caucasian were very stylized in movement, sort of like Meyerhold and constructivism, bioenergetic movement. And you'd sort of say a line, walk, 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 stand, turn to the left, listen to the line, turn front again, say a line. You know, it was very stylized, his movement. Not, not the other shows, but those two in particular. Because Stephen, like me, we always had to have something we were exploring had to be obviously something we were both happy to explore. And we always used to say that at the end of a production, we never knew who came up with what. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's rather nice. But I still noticed in the press conferences, he'd say, I did this, I did that. My mem-. And so I took him aside and said, Stephen, the we word. Mm-hmm. Let's start using the we word because you and I are festive collaborators on this. And, of course, you've gotten off on the ball rolling, done the, you know, uh, deciding what actors, all of that. And, of course, that's the he word. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what the audience actually visually sees, because I think audiences in our day and age, they actually hear with their eyes. I think they've kind of lost the principle of listening, and their eyes give them so much information that the information that's that we'd give them from the set is, and the costumes and the rhythmic movements were really important because I I firmly believe, I love my audience, and I firmly believe that in the first five minutes, the design and hopefully the actors, but say it's just music and stuff happening, and it's not words yet, have to reach across to the audience and say, come let me take you across a magic bridge to a special world where we're going to explore something. And that's what I think my designs do when they work. And the music and the lighting, I mean, it's it's a collaboration of how this works. It's not just the design, but I, I mean the overall embrace of the audience, invitation to the audience. I think this is so important, just the way I was saying that I believe the ending of the show is so important to give the audience some kind of uh, completion or question or let their heart expand. I'm just so interested in how people's hearts react to things. I've been reading a lot of books lately that says that heart is a second brain mm-hmm. and an important one. Mm-hmm. So when people say drama is superior to musicals, I don't understand that question at all because I think... When I hear music, my heart opens. When I see people move, my cells respond. Mm -hmm. We're giving the audience a workout. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, I mean, Maggie Smith could stand on the stage and recite the Bible and we'd be thrilled Mm -hmm. because she has that charismatic energy that she can send across the footlights Mm -hmm. because I've seen her work at Stratford. What an amazing actress. And we have a lot of our own amazing actors, too. Mm-hmm. But I'm just using that as an example that other people would know. But Mandragola was this very special, funny celebration. And Stephen was so engaged and so involved in it. And it was very successful. Mm-hmm. It was Chris's... Uh, I think one of the things that was different is that we used color and we used humor. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the Brecht scholars were very... Uh, uppity about this isn't the way the Berliner Ensemble would do it. And um, basically, I never spoke to any of these people directly, but this is what I heard through academic circles and others. So I mentioned this to Mary Jolliffe, who is I think Stephen's godmother, and she was a publicist for the Lincoln Centre and for a few others. She was one of Canada's top publicists. And she happened to be out there because she wanted to see our show. She loved following us around. And both sets of parents would follow us around. So my parents and Stephen's parents became very good friends because their kids were... Oh, sorry, I'm moving around too much. Their kids were being very... Yeah, you know, they were proud of us. and uh, But Mary... I said this to Mary. I said, I've heard these comments. And she said, Oh, for heaven's sakes, how provincial. She said, I've seen Brecht's things, and some of them are bright colors. He's written about bright colors in his shows. He's had more than just um, Casper Nair as a designer. He's had all sorts of designers. He said, the Berliner Ensemble was a certain style, but Brecht was very theatrical. Mm -hmm. And so she reassured us both that we hadn't just jumped off the cliff. Because color is not something to be afraid of, and... In our culture, it is, or it has been. I used to have a a Lapland hat that was velvet with ribbons that I wore with a coat from Afghanistan that was quilted. It was blue with big red roses and a green Ukrainian scarf. I wore it, and it was right to the ground. And I wore this in in, uh, Toronto in the winter. I was there for 25 years. And I was at a uh, a lecture that uh, Arthur Erickson, the great West Coast architect, was giving. And he was saying that only primitive cultures use color. And he did this whole talk. And finally, I put my hand up, and I, here I am sitting there looking like a Christmas tree. And I said, I know you really appreciate Japan and the Japanese colors, but that comes out of the rain, and probably B.C. is the same thing. But let's talk about Norway and snow countries, in the cold, I'm from Winnipeg, I said, color and lights are very encouraging. They are not necessarily the state of a primitive mind. So I said, I'm very insulted by that comment. Mm-hmm. And we had quite a bit of a contra, and we since had met before he died. We were in different associations together, and we talked and laughed about it. But that was his look. It's a bit the way Canadian design in houses and things, this this fad about gray grey and white and black I mean I wear black but I also have outfits that are all blue or all red because I want a uniform and uh, I think many people in theatre feel that way but colour I've never understood people's fear of colour or laughter yeah.
0: That's excellent. Okay so let's transition then to your big spectacle work. Now you have worked on uh, a few giant um, spectacles Including Expo '86 mm-hmm. uh, in Vancouver. We, in Vancouver, which we spoke to Astrid about, mm-hmm. Uh and uh, but only from her perspective as working from the Ontario kind of delegation or Ontario project, and uh, in the Commonwealth Games. And what year was that again?
1: Commonwealth Games was '94. '94. 1994.
0: And you also teach at Uvic about great spectacles and working on large um, public. Yeah. Right. Um, So tell us, first of all, tell us about Expo 86, what your experience was, uh, and then we'll transition into talking about sort of more general spectacles.
1: Well, as I I mentioned earlier, um, I was comfortable on a football stadium or on a big space because of my marching corps work. And... Or even my flying work. I like being above and looking at the big picture. I love those pictures where people take of the overheads, see the world from the overhead. I love pattern. And when, yeah, pattern and rhythm are so important to me um, in my sets, now that I think of it. Uh, Flying over, the first time I flew over the prairies and saw the quilt of the prairies, I was just, I couldn't stop looking out the window. I think I look at the overview in almost everything in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But doing uh, Expo 86 was very interesting because a wonderful man called Norman Hay thought that theater designers should be doing exhibition design. Mm -hmm. And he had known Astrid's work and my work. And he had the vision and the the chutzpah to hire us. Mm And Astra got Ontario, and I got Canada. And in the sense, the Canadian Pavilion, I got the first uh, theater in the Canadian Pavilion, and she got one of the theaters in the Ontario Pavilion. Can I just
0: stop you for a second? And uh, because I, it's probably true that not all of our listenership knows what the point—a sort of Expo, Expos,
1: and and, uh, in general, yeah. um, Well, the Expos are, to me, a chance for artists. Well, first. My definition of art or artist is someone who has a good idea and wants to share it. Whether it's about a good widget, or it's about a painting, or it's about a sculpture. People can be artists as scientists. I think it's Einstein that said something about creative thought was much more important than, not technical, but mathematical. And any mathematicians I've met, like Bohm and other people, at some of my Buddhist retreats, he came and talked at one. And he said, you know, the same factors I used last year to prove this, I've now used this year to prove something else. It's a creative act. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like that a lot. But, but Norman had the vision to do this. And uh, I was hired to do costumes at first in this particular thing of the Goose and Beaver, two iconic images. And so I did that, and I did a page, and I had these ideas. And before I knew it, I was doing the whole theater um, that sometimes happens. I get enthusiastic and I say, this is what I'm seeing. And then I get more to do. Anyway, I worked with the architect because I didn't want a square room. So I got him to put in louvers that we could downlight in the blue world. And then I everything had to be connected to um, thousands and thousands of people going through it safely. So... Part of the deal was, it's just like fire restrictions we have in theater on the main stages and things, and the fire retardants and the uh, fire curtains, is that since I had this dancing rainbow that went around the whole loop, the carpet was five colors of of, um, like the water, so there's five colors of blue, and there was a whole walkway, and then two or three or four big various size art deco lily pads that the Cast could come out, walk around, and relate to the audience as the audience did a big circle around them, and then went into the next pavilion. Tragically, the next pavilion is the one where the child was killed because of sitting on the father's uh, shoulders.
0: I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't heard of this. What what happened? This is something. It that... was
1: it was in the rehearsals before it opened, and they hadn't checked heights, and the guy and and they were on something. I gather. ...that turned, and the child was above the turning, and it broke its neck, and it was terrible.
0: That's awful. Sorry to yeah. make you tell that story, but man, that's, that's terrible.
1: It was terrible, and, and there were so many inventive things happening in the Canadian Pavilion, because the Canadian Pavilion, for those who are not familiar, was the, what do they call it now? The, the, the hotel, with all the, the sails...
0: Oh, is it the convention?
1: What is it? I guess it's a convention it's center a con- down there. It's, it's yeah, one it's with all the sales. Yeah, it, it had right. been built specially okay. for it. And this was the first thing that was ever in it was the Canadian Pavilion. In Vancouver, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so none of this would be in place once the show was over, once Expo 86 was over. But Expo 86 was a, was a B. It wasn't an A Expo. Expo 67 was the last A Expo. And I did a student thing in that for which actually won me first prize. (laughs) But Expo 80... So I I feel really... I love being in something that is going to reach a lot of people. And so I got very interested in looking at opening ceremonies. One of the best I've ever seen is the Athens Olympics. That was brilliant from a sculptural standpoint. That huge lake that disappeared and all those pieces that opened up and showed the entire history of Greek and Roman Greek uh, scholarship... I, I was fascinated with that. Um, and it, it just, that was one of the wonderful ones. But Saipan's one just recently in Rome, in Russia, showing constructivism. and, But he built an entire ceiling that allowed things to fly and move. And that was fascinating to me. Um, the one in Beijing, I was more upset about, and no one else seemed to be. Because an opening ceremony is a political. Um, message. It's propaganda. I mean, I think it was Mayakovsky that says uh, you make art to hit people with a hammer. Like, to make them, it's not about pretty things. It's mm-hmm. about changing things. Right. And I, although a lot of my stuff is probably being considered fanciful, um, I firmly follow that mm-hmm. concept. So, that uh, an expo allows you to do that. An ex a B expo means you are, uh, the country giving the expo provides the spaces and you just fit into them and maybe put a facade on the front. An A expo means you actually build your pavilions. Like, this is why we got Buckminster Fuller's Dome, right. this is why we got Fry Auto stretch skin membrane for the German Pavilion. Most ex- I got his book is just, I, I just love his work. Um. This is why we got Svoboda doing his *Laterna Magica. Uh, and many, many, many explorations. And so Moroso, Norval Morisot, the great Norvel Morisot, the Picasso of the North, did a big mural. I mean, it, expos can be wonderful because they... They share that, as I said about art, it's a great idea that what means to be shared and it's shared with all of humanity, which is co- totally against what's going on in our world right now. I mean, not specifically with individuals, but with what's going on. We're in a dangerous, dangerous place. Um, and that was getting the chance to have a voice about talking about Canada. And we I was the producer on that particular Goose and Beaver show. And these costumes were amazing. They cost a fortune, each one, and had mechanical aspects. Peggy the goose, and they talked about Canada. And we got Andy Jones. I hired him to write. First, I asked John Candy, mm-hmm. I must admit. Um, but he was in the middle of a film, but he said I would have loved to. And But Andy Jones, is. I've been on councils with him, and he's brilliant and he wrote the most wonderful text and and banter, and the actors just loved it because it took on the lumber industry, the <laughs> politics, I mean, everything, the jokes, the A, and all that. Um, but the prime minister and his delegation went through a few days before. I think it was Mulrooney, but I can't remember. So, uh, And they were horrified <laughs> because they were entertaining the people as they very slowly... And stood there and then the next pavilion opened as they moved out and then we, the different rooms, mm-hmm. the, the different theatres in the Canadian Pavilion. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. so it got cancelled and it became a thin pablum indeed. Mm-hmm. And from, I never saw it fortunately because I had to fly to New Zealand at that point. Mm-hmm. Or was I? No, I had to go and get Big Top opening at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and then fly to New Zealand. And it was sort of a I think I'm glad I didn't see the truncated version that the director had to adjust. But I also designed in that uh, Princess Diana and the Prince came to open the Canadian Pavilion. So I had to design a big rainbow and and stuff around it outside. And I like doing stuff like that. But um, Astrid's was in a big dome a little further away. And uh, to be honest, I never got to walk through it, but I saw good pictures. We were just too busy, all of us. We were running.
0: Sure. And if uh, if the listener wants to go back to Astrid uh, Jansen's interview, she talks about the design process and and uh, and that part of the the expo. So from that, though, um, you had what I think is a probably a more profound experience during the opening ceremonies of the Commonwealth Games. Tell me how you found your way in. First of all, how did you get hired? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested how you sort of found that work and um, and then, how you find your way into sort of creating an expression of of our well, it took three years.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was three years of work. Um, but how did I find my way into that? Um, as I as I did mention to you, I um, I had to move out here in '90 because my mother was given two months to live. And I had I was supposed to go to do a show at Covent Garden. And another with Sadler Wells. Another with Jonathan Miller, the old Vic. And was just and Stephen had just died. And I was just getting ready to do this, and uh, then Mum got sick. So I moved out here. And when I was out here, she was still alive. We'd got her into remission. So I was looking around. What could I do out here? I did an Emily Carr piece for uh, Jovette Morisseau, the French Canadian sculptor and writer. Did a show about Emily Carr. Most transcendent script. And this was the first English one we'd ever done. Uh, it was a translation, so it was the first time in English. And uh, Glennis Leeshorn was the uh, director on it. Really wonderful experience. It was at the Belfry. Uh, who was in charge? I think Glynis was in charge of the Belfry at that point. I was still going to t- cancer treatments and chemo treatments with my mother, so my brain was in a few places. And I'd just done Cozy Fantuti for the opera out here. when Because I always take anything I could do out here, because I could visit my parents in, in Victoria. Um, but, uh, and then I heard Expo was coming, uh, or um, the Commonwealth Games was coming, and I... I had just seen what they'd done in New Zealand, and I was so moved by the spiritual possibilities as well as the humanistic possibilities of how you can reach millions of people. Mm -hmm. I think we met, I don't know, 10 million, 20... You know, there's a lot of people. It's not as big as an Olympics. Mm -hmm. The budgets aren't either. Mm -hmm. It's a very low budget. I think I had a million and a half dollar.
0: And you told me earlier about your experience with the New Zealand opening... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's especially important in this case because it was still about that relationship between colonialism yes. and the indigenous Maori people in New Zealand. So tell me about how that experience changed you.
1: Well, I, I lived in New Zealand on and off for a couple of years. And um, I was, uh, there was an exchange, a cultural exchange with the designer I met at the Prague Quadrionnel when I was representing Canada in 83, uh, Ian Atkin. And he, like many New Zealanders, wanted some overseas experience. <clears throat> and he said, and then when he found out that I had a New Zealand boyfriend who was finishing his, ar- his architecture degree, he said, couldn't we work something out here? What about if you come and take over the Mercury Theatre and design the, it was all, that's where I did a Sweeney Todd with 60 people from the opera. Uh, I mean, just some really Tosca, a whole bunch of stuff. And... Um, and met Dorita Hanna, and she assisted me on Sweeney when she was starting to become a theater designer from her architecture degree. And um, how did I get off on all that? Oh, and, and so New Zealand was a special place for me and very um, sensitive to colonial issues still. And I met this wonderful Maori war- uh, warrior. Yes, yeah, she was a warrior, mm-hmm. is a warrior, Pauline Kingi, And she kind of politicized me about the whole Maori issue. John already was working on his thesis on Maori housing inside inner cities. He was already very, very sensitive about environmental issues and things. But I didn't know that much about the New Zealand Maori and uh, she gave me books. <laughs> she said you're very naive, and gave me books, and and I became horrified when I found some of the issues and the land issues. And Pauline was a, a a lawyer, one of the first Maori women or Maori period to study in the States. I don't remember if it was Harvard or whatever, but she was she had a voice like a cello, so she'd hypnotize people with anyway she um, she was a big influence in me in New Zealand, and we just had left and come back to Canada when they put on their their opening ceremonies. so I knew the players and they'd gotten the person who was the designer, I think, and the artistic director was from a dance group in New Zealand, very experimental Maori dance group so that was part of the issue for them was to tell their story to the world, and as I explained to you, it was so moving John and I were watching it in Toronto. I don't think no, yeah we were st- we had, just before we moved we were watching it in Toronto and it started with New Zealand's the land of the long white cloud, so it started with clouds and bird song and filling the stage with blue fabric and a wonderful sculptural boat came in and uh, a lot of the Maori legends and things were were brought to bear they sort of really wove a spirit on that stage and then all of a sudden in red white and blue came in march music came in the the church came in military came in and they all came in from the four corners and the other four corners of say the union jack you know the flag making a huge colored union jack at this total chaotic sound it was amazing and we just said they're not going to do that they are going to do that they're not they did this oh my god we it was so outrageous mm-hmm. it was so brave this little tiny mouse that roared mm-hmm. right i'm going to tell my st- our story to the world mm-hmm. and i think a lot of new zealanders were shocked mm-hmm. <laughs> as well but uh, and then in the, it got to its peak of chaos, and all of a sudden they all just whoosh, disappeared out the exits. They had much bigger exits than we had to work with. And this one old woman in a long skirt and a babushka in a kind of a Maori uh, peasant look, mm-hmm. just a normal, with her cane walked out to the center, very slowly to the center of the, of the whole stadium. A pin could drop. And it was Dame Fina Cooper who was uh, led all, uh, led all the land marches and was a great symbol of indigenous growth. Because in New Zealand they were further along than us in terms of indigenous cooperation and care with each other. There was still the rednecks, but mm-hmm. a lot of marriages. Maori were in all the school systems. It was a lot of it, smaller country, easier to integrate. And as Pauline said, she was the chancellor of Out University as well last time I was there. And she said, we're finding that actually, as Maori, we're actually very good with technology. So we're kind of taking that over. (laughs) I loved it. And uh, so why I guess I'm speaking about that in such detail is that it inspired me to use opening ceremonies as a political and artistic tool. Mm-hmm. And mostly, I mean, there's a, a real formula you follow mm-hmm. for all these things. There's the uh, entertainment for the athletes, there's the parade of the athletes, there's the parade of the flags, there's the, the, the dignitaries. It's all, it's all very organized. Mm-hmm. And um, But what I saw was in New Zealand, it started the show, and they didn't do any more entertainment factor. That's not the right word. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, with the main emphasis being on the on the uh, players, on the sports people, obviously. But the Commonwealth Games is not as big as the Olympics, and it's um, it's still about 52 countries, so it's not chopped liver. But uh, and in fact. BBC comes and... Co- There's a lot of different places that come and cover it. And after we did our dress rehearsal, uh, the head of the BBC came to me and said, Thank you. And I said, Why? And he said, For giving us something to shoot. Mm. He said, This is much more... Your concept of a story that integrates the entire opening ceremonies is much more of an Olympic mm-hmm. look. And I told him how much we'd spent on it, and he was just floored. <laughs> it was really fun. Because I come from poor theater. Mm-hmm. I'm used to making things work on a low budget, Mm -hmm. but the story about how that happened, Ed Oscapella was the um, producing, he wasn't the production manager, but he was the one who was the head producer, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was in town, and I guess I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs, watching my mom and going to chemo treatments, and... And I heard that they were bringing this in a couple of years ahead of time. And um, so I approached him. I said, hey, I'm in town. I'd be good to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, blink, blink, blink. And uh, he knew my work. uh, And uh, he was very interested in that. He says, well, we're thinking also of working with Jacques LeMay. And I said, well, we've done a lot of shows together. He's certainly comfortable in making people move and moving things around. He's not afraid of my design, mm-hmm. and so um, we were both semi-hired because to get the Olympic bid or to get the Commonwealth bid, mm-hmm. they had to do a premise, and the premise was they were going to do it in that very harbor where you landed. Yeah. Could it be? Because and that's what they sold it on. Right. So I was supposed to do an analysis to find out if that would work. And Jacques and I talked about some ideas, but it was mainly about the physical analysis. Where would they sit? Where would people, you know, where would they park? How would we get this on? I I proposed a whole water opening, Mm -hmm. everything on the opening, and I wanted um, the First Nations who do, uh, B.C. First Nations have the most amazing canoes, Mm -hmm. the Salish and the Quagguth and the various, and I... It was tying into what they ultimately did was a whole canoe trip down the West Coast ending up in the harbor. as, And so I was trying to tie that together and uh, without without working with any First Nations people yet at that point because this was just uh, do some drawings, put it in, say that you can actually do it now that we've got it. Well, we said no, you could, but you couldn't. So it moved to the stadium at that point. And then we seemed to be carry on. Um, It was tricky because Jacques was in charge of Charlottetown that summer. Mm -hmm. So um, he was mostly away, and we communicated by fax and by telephone and things. But I had a lot of feelings because of New Zealand and what they were doing. And my experience with expos, just about the window to the world Mm -hmm. and how could we share our culture... And one of the things that really moved me about New Zealand was that a country that's proud of itself or that's confident in itself, as I said before, they laugh at themselves, Mm -hmm. but they also know whose shoulders they're standing on. And they also honor the people that were there before them. Mm -hmm. Like with Pauline, at one stage I said, so, have the Maori awas been here? And she says, oh no, there was someone here before us, another culture. They might have come from Hawaii. They might and I said, So where were they when the Maori supposedly came in the fourteen hundreds? And she said, Oh, we ate them. I said, Well, in a way the white person is eating you. She didn't talk to me for two months. <laughs> but but you know, it, it just the way my brain worked. Well and I didn't mean it was a good thing. <laughs> it was just I mean, think of the Mongolian hordes going back and forth through, through Europe, uh, trampling all these different countries and well, destroying them.
0: I mean, when we look at the—I'm uh, doing a lot of reading right now—the on Indian Act and, uh, and mm-hmm. this, the Sixties Scoop and things like that. And, I mean, the supplanting of indigenous culture and the full assimilation into the colonial culture was the point certainly in Canada, was yes. to eliminate that culture by subsuming it, by yep. consuming it, by replacing it. Same with New Zealand. Right. They
1: just wanted to kill them there. Right. But yeah, yeah, and it was because they, I mean, this was the political, it happened in India. It happened everywhere they went. The Great British Hand, they've done it to our theaters too. That's a whole other issue of something I'm working on right now. Um, but it, it's just very intriguing to me that, uh, I guess I felt once we had the show, I felt very strongly that we had to have a First Nations component that was an equal partner with us, mm-hmm. very strongly about this. Uh, it wasn't everybody's cup of tea, so it took a certain amount of discussing and and, and um, convincing. Um, Interesting sidebar was Chief Adam Dick, the Quag Youth Chief, that is Quaxi Stala and has just died at the age of 90 and is one of the last four hereditary Quag Youth Chiefs from from Alert Bay and could do a 12-day potlatch in the old language because when this whole system of taking everyone and putting the kids in the thing, Mm -hmm. his shaman grandfather hid him away in the forest. Mm -hmm. He did not go. So, as he said to me once, he said, oh, he said, "Um, this is why I talk like an ignorant Indian. I never learned to talk English. I didn't have to go to the school. They think I'm just a dumb fisherman. And Kim, Kim, his partner, Mm -hmm. who's educated in uh, chief as well, or was at the time, and very culturally uh, a teacher the two of them have done, films have done it's very important, he was kept in the forest, She said yes but Adam can speak the old language for 12 days in a row and knows that the potlatch is a judicial system as well as a social system and he's like she said he's speaking the equivalent of classical Greek Mm -hmm. but the white person doesn't know this, so it was just an amazing journey with these two wonderful people who became good friends. And Kim and I are uh, talking about, uh, writing about our experience in creating this creation legend of Kabadilakala, um, And why it seemed to work so well for us when so many people are talking about appropriation and, and not working well together. Mm-hmm. Why is that happening? Why did ours work? Why did... Her answer when I was speaking about it on the phone was, she said, well, it's because we took it to a higher level. We worked for the good. We weren't trying to push an Indian agenda or a white agenda. We were talking about taking to the higher level of respect for the benefit of all. Yeah, I like that. Yeah,
0: it wasn't a commodification. No. It was about communicating a message. And, sorry, this is Kim. What's...
1: Kim Rakamaklutasi, her name mm, is. Okay. And, um, interesting woman her mother was Icelandic her father was a chief and um her brother is now the chief of that area in Qualicum and I I re-met him just recently with the burning ceremony for Chief Adam because they were ritualists and it really mattered and the the interesting thing was that the first time I flew to New Zealand when we landed in Auckland a whole group of people got up put on ceremonial Quaggius robes and headdresses and feathers and departed. Adam and I found that that was Adam. We were both on the same plane back in 86. I mean, there's a lot of synchronicities between me helping to tell the story and... um, I was just so strong. Felt, uh, we offered it first to the Salish mm-hmm. because it's their land and it's their stories to tell here. Mm-hmm. And I went to about three people and they, oh, no, 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 no. We we do our work very privately. Mm-hmm. We're not the performers. Mm-hmm. But our Kwagi with brothers mm-hmm. are much more open to that. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of laughing, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any of that at the time. I'm so naive. I just, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I... I think it was Jacques that found Kim at an interview, and he said maybe she'd be the way in, So, because by then he was on board with all that too. And uh, she came to my house. We sat in, in uh, the dining room, and she vetted me. <laughs> she read me. And at the end of it, she said, I'd like you to meet Adam. And so we were invited to their home, and before I left i I went into the garden. I had quite a herb garden for healing things and i because it's always interested me and I picked a bunch of herbs, and I took it with me and gave it to them as a present, which seemed to please him quite a bit. It was just an intuitive thing sure. and we talked for quite a while. he'd just come through heart surgery, <laughs> oh, my god and um he was more quiet. She's more loquacious. She's gone to university. She's she's given been a consultant to Chrétien She's a consultant in Manat. She's she's a a, a very quiet behind the scenes learned woman, and uh, and just lovely. So intelligent. They both were, and but he's hidden behind his his upbringing. I will look down. I will do. You know. But so we talked for about two or three hours, and then he sort of went with his eyes to Kim, and she disappeared into another room and came out and brought his cape, his feathers, Mm -hmm. and a roll of paper. Mm -hmm. And he did a whole ceremony around me, Mm -hmm. just about. And he said, this is the most sacred legend and the earliest of our people. Mm -hmm. I'm entrusting this to you to tell our story. And I would, I mean, I I still get my goosebumps because the ancestors are always present. (sighs) It was just a high point of my whole life. Mm -hmm. So off we go and working and talking and because they, Adam had grown up in the big house and it was a book that never got to be written. Maybe Kim will write it. But his grandfather, like, there were traps all under the big house. There was all these alleys. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, he would crawl through with a bladder full of blood. Mm-hmm. And under the fire, at the right moment, he'd go, whoo, and the blood would fly up, and everyone would go, ah! Yeah. And, and the, the shells on their costumes under the lamplight and the firelight would glitter like sequins. And they also had flying rigs things would come across and be dropped. Mm -hmm. And they'd have certain things they could throw in the fire that would make it pop. I mean, I was just... So John was going to draft it all up, and we were going to try and write a bit of a book. Mm -hmm. I had no idea the big house had that potential of the playhouse. Mm -hmm. We come from these people, and we... Mm -hmm. In in whatever country, everyone... You know, I was just floored. It was so amazing. Mm -hmm. But... So we worked together on a lot of things because they were very aware of the scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really comfortable in big scale and moving through stage space. Um, I love perspective and points of view and breaking the proscenium and all sorts of things that I've done often. But this was one where we had to do it in, in the round. We had to do it in daylight in order to hit the broadcasting of the European thing. We had to start at four in the afternoon. I did not have the illusion of lighting that many, many opening ceremonies, Commonwealth or Olympic, count on. So it was like, here we are, we're doing, we're doing children's theater again, which I did a huge amount growing up uh, in, when I first started designing in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, and we're doing it in gym lighting. <laughs> but that's okay. That's where color comes in and scale. And thousands of people moving things. So I made a huge board in the front room that just totally scaled the whole thing, and and I worked out all the different possibilities what the scale was, and I'd take pictures of it, and Jacques would come over, and I'd say, "Look, I think this could go to here and that." What do you think? He'd say, well, what about if they could go here and, do? you know? So we worked out the kinetics. Yeah. But the first nations, I made it the centerpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent all most of the money, two-thirds of the money on that, mm-hmm. um, because it had a huge walking wolf mm-hmm. There was about 30 feet by 25, and it was operated by 60 people, and it just walked, and Andrew Wallace was the brains behind that. He was one of my props builders from Shaw. Mm-hmm. He was a scientist, and one day, Bryn Feiner, I got Bryn Feiner to, um, I talked him into being the technical director for, because uh, we had, it took about six, eight months to build this thing in a big factory, a warehouse out in Saanich. and uh, there was quite a few challenges. Partly because I was ignorant of certain things, first time I've done it. Not that many. it's a very small club; people that do opening ceremonies, oh, sure. and and you're kind of learning as you go along. We had a lot of people help us from. Uh, UVic which I wasn't part of at the time mm-hmm. and a lot of people brought came came in and, uh, and Kim and Adam came and painted they also came and they helped the, the people making, the artists and the people making everything to understand the gravity of the situation mm-hmm. and they explained who they were and they explained the legend and they explained the ancestors and they explained how important and so everyone was just there whoa it was just a a team and we had these four big uh totems that were carved in the shape i showed you his father's house they were carved in what he had as a picture of his father's totems and i put them on little um tractors little tiny tractors and had big cedar tree four four panels was it five or six panels transparent with patterning uh that Adam approved, and they moved around in the creation part, mm. and then, then they dropped them down and made a big house at the end. The walls of the big house were made. I was going to do structure and anything, but we, my my sort of idea was to get the queen to come into the big house, mm. meet them both in there, and give her a dress there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, to to get the the uh, when the, when Marie, but whoever the person who came brought the the message in the in the thing, and so the way I got around the Secret Service in Buckingham Palace because it was a huge thing was I said well could they be humans so I decided it was the women and the children who became the walls of the big house because they're the future, <clears throat> but we got. I had it's a, it was a huge amount of drawings, but this huge wolf and these four tre- cedar trees, and he the wolf had to come out of the mountain and give birth to the four children of Kawad- Kawadilika and the other three, and so um, this mountain because we had to get through the stadium doors, it weren't wide, had to come, it was like about twelve feet by twelve feet by, 12. Mm-hmm. and then so we had someone in the center putting the pole up, and then all the other people running out. And it was in different shaped patterns. This was another thing that Andrew worked out. I mean, I I designed it and drew it, but he made it happen. And Andrew uh, Wallace, I should bring back that. This is Victoria Wallace's brother. And um, and Victoria had been an assistant of mine at one stage, very talented woman. And But Andrew just arrived in a pickup truck one day. I said, Andrew, what are do you doing? Because he did my props for... Uh, several of my shows at Shaw, and he said, with his broken tooth and his glasses falling, and he sort of said, "Understand, you're doing something impossible out here. Thought you might need me."
0: <laughs>
1: oh, loved it, just so neat. And Bryn said, "Hi, Andrew." Okay, you know, because Andrew's just a master. He just slept in his truck, and and he invented he he did all the aluminum welding of the wolf's head and i think i showed you pictures of it and the mouth had to open and hold the ball of of quela which is spirit and all these legs had to work we used my dog the other, another dog i had at the time as a symbol and this thing walked around the stadium i showed it i took these pictures just as an aside i took these down i can't remember his name michael somebody who did the props for for um, Line King, and whose firm down in Portland or outside of Portland, does all those. And I wanted to meet him. I wanted to show him what we'd done. I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can design something for him. And uh, the words were how did you do this with just people? (laughs) He was just floored that we had the nerve to do it. He said, you've just seen what's in here. I've done a small bear that's fully mechanical. And he did a bear for, I think, the Olympics in Vancouver. That's a whole other story. Um, And he was just floored by the wolf and by these huge 26-foot dolls and by, I had all what I call pedal children they were geometric patterns that you'd rarely see on TV because they were the transitions to other things. And I want—I wanted the audience to have a good time mm-hmm. in the stadium as well as on the, and um, that seemed to floor people that that was even thought of. Mm-hmm. So I put on a big show, uh, and we created all these patterns, Jacques and I, and and it was quite wonderful. How, but they were all forms of um, that Bryn got made of of metal painted white in different shapes there were circles there were clover leaves there were uh triangles and there were ellipses and if you put them together they make art deco mm. stencil patterns mm-hmm. and they filled the whole stage when we had a lot of transitions the kids would all just 500 of them run out they were all everyone was dressed in green so they matched mm-hmm. and they would run out and off they'd go and make these patterns and and as Michael said, but what about wind? Because <laughs> this isn't in a close... And I said, yeah, we would have been toast. Because little Griselda would have been hanging on, flying to Nanaimo, saying, bye, mummy." <laughs> <That's> and- <laughs> <that's laughs> so, so we were risking that. But, yeah. but Adam took care of that. The wind was making all the flags go at a total right angle as we started into the ceremony and uh, as, as it all started. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1990s, you know, that type of thing. And I said, what are we going to do? And Kim said, just wait. Mm. And he was going. (laughs) And they all just went. Mm. And when we finished, at the end, we made this huge bird of peace made out of umbrellas and people singing. And the tail feathers was the rainbow bird that I've done as a symbol for my own artwork since, I don't know, I was about 18. They all had these backpacks with, <laughs> with ripstop nylon. Oh, we spent a lot of money on ripstop nylon. And they all ran out and made this huge rainbow tail. And the eye in the sky, um, Goodwill Blimp, was taking because I wanted this picture. And Richard Margerson was in the eye of the bird singing. He's such a good sport. He's been in some of my operas. And uh, that happened, Let Your Spirit Take Flight, and then the drum beat started, it was it was the finale. Mm-hmm. Here's this finale we're talking about. And they changed all the umbrellas to black, white, and red mm-hmm. and patterns. And I had had a Salish artist um, up Island, because mm-hmm. it's Salish land, do a Salish Thunderbird pattern that we then made happen with the umbrellas and more ripstop nylon tail feathers. Mm-hmm. So this beautiful dove. Bump, 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 bump you know, and it changed because it was the Salish Thunderbird of striving and athletic genius, you know, and so that changed, and the audience was just like, even in daylight it was pretty good, because it filled the whole stage, it filled the whole thing and the four totem poles were at the corners so making the whole stage the big house, you are watching the big house here and at that point the The planes flew over the. um, Mm. Oh right. What are they called?
0: The the Canadian. Yeah, that group. Snowbirds. Snowbirds. Yeah.
1: And we were at the end, and then all the flags went up again. Mm -hmm. The wind came back instantly, but our wolf was saved. Our our mountain, our huge mountain, was saved. All of these other elements were saved. We had salmon. We had a a whole globe, uh, of uh, connecting the world because the legend of Kawadilika is amazing. It's about this wolf comes out of the mountain, and it's the mountain just up island. Mm -hmm. I mean, Adam would show me where, he said, this is where it came from, and this is where the water came, and um, it's very real. Mm -hmm. And I I accept that concept Mm -hmm. um, easily. Um, And I showed him all the the different plans of of how this could be actualized, the story he'd given me, and he... mm, you know, looked at it and spent quite a bit of time looking at it. He was quite happy with it. He was quite happy with it. Because it, as Kim said, we don't do this in the big house. We don't have salmon. We don't have other things. And there were seagulls. There was deer. There was, it was about the creation. But out of the wolf came these four huge puppets operated by three people. And they were all painted in ripstop. Someone in the center, someone holding the arms, and they had as as the story was was uh, spoken. It was spoken by Kim. She wrote it uh, from the the original from the First Nations language. Um, we watched them. And it's it's really the legend about how all it's the story it's it's the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. it's how you divided the nation into different languages. Mm-hmm. So all four sent this. They were playing with this ball of quela, and I'd ask Adam, "What does quela mean?" He says, "Everything, you know. It's spirit. It's everything. And uh, and they had to play toss with this for a while, and in it came a suit. I I probably can't say it right anymore but it's a a wonderful creature that can fly and can swim and is almost like a canoe and it took them all on a huge ride around it actually did in a CBC cameraman who got in the way (laughs) because it was like a Chinese dragon but very big with two tails and it was all moving around and we had sun and moon symbols and we had it was really interesting and what happens is that they blow the quail around, and it, we had little puff balls of ripstop myelin under which were hidden many of the different cultures of Victoria and Vancouver Island Ukrainian, da 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 da, da. and once this had been pushed around, they opened up the, and the wolf moved around all that. They they. Um, It was really giving birth to all the nations, so it suddenly tied everything else in, and then all the flags came in, and all the countries came in, and it was—it was kind of like, "This is how we see it in Canada: how all of you have been created." It was lovely, and um, but it it care, and then the the. um, I'm trying to think which the order was now. If it was the Queen. But all the, all the trees became the totems, and his father's great shields came out at the back, and all the women came on. Mm-hmm. And about 50 or 60 First Nations and Salish and quite, all came in. Mm-hmm. May, and there was a fire. We put a fire, it was not a real fire, mm-hmm. but a. And the Queen came out of the stadium for the first time in history mm-hmm. and walked in to the big house. Beside Adam and Kim, because he, he called all the nations, you know, Helicester, Helakatsa, a wonderful singer. Mm-hmm. She came in, and they called in a way the spirits of the world, and then the queen did the same thing. Mm-hmm. We got so many heartbreaking letters from Aboriginal people all over the world. Mm-hmm. Chief Adam did, mm-hmm. but they, they shared them with me, about how did you get your country to admit that you're alive? Our countries have thought we were dead for years. How did you get your country to tell your story? You know, they. it was really interesting. I mean, not something I'd expected. Mm -hmm. But Kim said, to the day that Adam died, he believed he had potlatched with the world. Mm -hmm. And of course, as soon as I thought about it, of course he did. (laughs) Of course that's what we did. And as I say, her letter, which might be released at some time, it's... I won't read it now because it's pretty personal for this particular thing that she wrote it for. But it was really, she felt that the whole work about indigenous um, understanding started with our games. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's uh, certainly with the, I mean, we can't say the work is obviously over because there's lots of promises that were made that were never kept and have not been kept yet. No,
1: it's on the way, but it's not. um,
0: But it's remarkable that that, can't it's i think it's a lesson that it can happen and that what that's uh that's a relationship we should probably strive for i have to i have to find a way to talk to or to find indigenous artists to 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 invite them on the show to talk about the other like the the older the original like expressive and it's too bad adam died he would
1: have been a good person to talk to because he he performed it
0: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly
1: um, but there are people who, I mean, but even Adam and Kim, one one of their sadnesses was that the young people don't want to. Uh, I understand that. I went to art school, and I didn't want to do Rembrandt. Yeah. I could do that, but I didn't want to. I wanted to do abstraction. Um, I think Kim and Adam were just concerned that it would get lost because there's no tangible history. Mm-hmm. So that's why... They've done films on, this is what I do with cedar bark, this is what I do with these herbs. I mean, the only way Adam lived to be 90 was the amazing things that Kim was able to help him with from medicine, uh, Indian medicine, as she'd call it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a moment then to, to, just to land and transition to, I think, our final kind of conversation, which is going to be about... Um, you would want to talk about theatre as art and a defense of the premise... Uh, and this is something uh, I just want to harken back to what Robert Gardner uh, spoke about with me uh, you know, a few days ago now, would have, would have been the last episode uh, or two episodes ago where he was talking about the struggle as an educator, as an academic, to prove to uh, the rest of academia and to the granting agencies and the people who support sort of academic research that theater practice is I mean that is his work. And it should be seen in the same light as an academic research paper or scientific research. Uh, and I think along the same lines, we had this divide between theater and perhaps—I mean, we call it the fine arts, and we call it theatrical arts. Like there's a, some sort of divide there that someone has devised. Yeah. So explain mm. to me why we need to maybe remove that divide, or how you see that that kind of practice. Well,
1: that's a really good question and interesting question I've taught here for 20 years now since I had to move out here and but in the early days to pay my bills I taught at Ryerson I taught at York uh, I taught at Waterloo as a set and costume designer or at photo arts interior design wherever I could talk about about art and I think I'm in a a strange position. I'm not sure it's a privileged position compared to some theater design or many theater designers because I haven't gone through a theater school and I haven't I haven't learned it in that way. Uh, and my whole future, as far as I was concerned, was going to be a sculptor. There weren't many women sculptors at the time. There was Lee Bontiso and Marisol and Louise Nevelson but they were considered kind of freaks. And I was in my school, too. They would, It would be like Joey Fafard was there at the same time, who does all the cows and stuff, right? Really interesting artist and a good friend. And I was the only woman. No, there was one other woman. But I think I was the only one that was carrying on with it. So, of course, I had to do the biggest sculpture, and I had to do all the welding, and I had to do this to show that I was a sculptor, right? Um. But I remember once I was moving my sculptures from one gallery to another in my thesis year, and one of the big tall ones started to tip and fall mm. as I was pulling a... And there were some of my classmates, there was only a few of us, but standing there. And they didn't stop it. They just says, oh, is it a bit too heavy for a nice little girl like you? I've run into that all my life as a theater designer especially when i was uh, astrid was the only other person who was doing set and costumes the way i was and i don't understand this separation i i suppose something should have twigged that when i was at art school there were no women professors <laughs> there were no women sculptors there was no one but you know i still sort of thrilled when they said you make art like a man so there's a whole other issue here about Women and feminism and Me Too and my great-grandmother, who was a, a novelist, who was never published, who I'm going to try and get published in the 1860s. She wrote up in northern Ontario about being in the woods. She wasn't heard either. So it's an issue. I'm... I've been awfully lucky. I've done nearly 300 shows. I've won a lot of awards. I've had a certain amount of honors and respect. I've had some wonderful students. They're my best lineage, actually. Um, And I've fought the last 20 years, if not much longer, but the last 20 years in academia to have just what you just said, to have the art we do up there considered um, practice, artistic practice. But more importantly, I've always said I'm not a theater designer. I'm a sculptor who does kinetics. I do kinetic sculpture on stage. Um, I don't know if that's just because I'm a dancer and I like to see everything in motion all the time. My sets move. They do things. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking the other day, if I was like in my late 20s and having a certain amount of control and power and possibility with with collaborators and directors who want it to work that way. What would I be engaged in that would be new? Because I always wanted to be doing something no one else was doing. I don't think I did it intentionally. Mm -hmm. It was just all I could do. It was the best I could do. Mm -hmm. Um, Milton Glasser, the great graphic artist in New York, is one of my idols. He's about, I think he's in his 90s now. He did the iconic I Love New York, but he also did that Bob Dylan portrait, and he ran Pushpin Studios, and I just love graphic art as an immediate way of connecting with people. His drawings moved. He could do realism. He could do anything. So I figured theater could do this too, and as an art form, it was a wonderful place of expression because it's only been recently that artists have been excluded from theater, like artists with quotes such as Picasso, did for the theater, Cocteau did, um, you know, it, it, you look at the, I'm, I'm a great fan of constructivism, Russian constructivism, Goncharova, Popova, Exter, all all of the production designers at that time were women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is interesting to me. Um, Leon Bax did rather bad sets, but extraordinary costumes, mm-hmm. Um It was a time of such change, and the women were leading it with with uh, Mayakovsky, uh, with Meyerholt. I mean, when we did, John Willett was our consultant on Three Penny Opera, and of course, it was a great deconstructive explosion of a city space, of the walls falling in, and and uh, the people, that music. I mean, when you design something like that, if there's music, you have to design for the music, not the text because the audience won't hear the text. They'll only hear what the music makes their heart feel. And so the musician in me wants to approach it that way. And John Willett, I said when it opened up, I said, so would Mr. Brecht have liked it? Because he's a great Brecht scholar. He knew knew Brecht. He said, oh, no, he would have hated it. He said, but Meyerhold would have worshipped you. I said, who's Meyerhold? Mm. He said, you don't know who Meyerhold is. I said, no. I didn't go to a theater school. Mm-hmm. And we were at Banff. And he said, there's a really good library downstairs. Mm-hmm. I suggest you go there right now. Yeah. And I, I brought all these books up. I read all night. And I kept thinking, this is exactly what Stephen and I were doing. This is what Stephen and I were talking about. Mm-hmm. This is the, the bioenergetic movement. This is exactly what... I, would just, I was beside myself. And the next day I went to him and said... Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so innocent. And, uh, I, I was so ignorant. I was just ignorant. And <laughs> he and I became good friends, and he's the one that sponsored me in England and introduced me to all those people, like John Cox, who was running Covent Garden. Uh, said, "I'm only seeing you." He was about six foot five, because my good friend John told me I had to. I have about ten minutes. Uh, I don't buy. I don't. I don't hire people from the Commonwealth. And I went, okay. And I showed him some work, and that kept me there for three hours, and he offered me a show at the end and said, you're a young David Hockney. Uh, I've always said to my students, you have to be able to talk about your work and your ideas. Because he said, well, I'm surprised to be saying this, but... You know, I'm very entertained by talking with you. Because they want, a director wants someone who's a playmate. They want someone who's an equal in ideas and talking, not just someone who says, yeah, I think I'll draw something. Uh, they want someone who's articulate. And anyway, we, we had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you got uh, one of the things we do up here, because I insist that my students have a chance to design on the main stage, uh, I used to have to do a certain amount, but I've tried to change that so my students are paying the thing, and I supervise them. I'm the fly on the wall. I don't, I don't leave them by themselves, but they have to do a portfolio review with whoever the directors are the next year, and the directors choose with my consultation, so that I don't put them in over their heads. And uh, because the more I said, look, the more you audition, the better you will be at getting a job. I worry about my students getting a job. I very much worry in the world today, and uh, unless they just want to be dogs' bodies. But if they're creative artists, um, some of my best students come from visual arts, Mm -hmm. but visual arts will not accept the uh, the art I do and that all of us do as the same. And I'm in a kind of interesting position that I can shout that down, because say, look, I came through this, I am a sculptor, I understand that, because I'm often on thesis committees, and that must be John coming home, and I'm often on thesis committees, and I just say, because I can bring in a different kind of an approach, and they'll often put something in the middle of the room for for a sculpture, and say, (coughs) and I'll say, well, at the preliminaries when we're meeting, and I'll say, well, what about, wouldn't you want to if it's in the room, what about putting something on the walls? What about hiding this? What about integrating it? And one of the one of the teachers said, Mary, you know, this is art, not theater design. Mm. It's not the same thing. And I said, well, it is actually. We're not going to talk about it here in front of the student, but you and I are going to have a discussion mm-hmm. because I can give you a lot of good examples of how artists like to work in theater because... Uh, Okay, here's another story about art and theater. Is that when I was made a member of the um, RCA, um, which isn't the Royal Society; it's that other one. Mm. And I, I was at a crisis point in my life where I thought, I wondered if I'd wasted my life doing theater when all my teachers at the art school had thought I should be doing. Uh, sculpture and painting that I was the great white hope and I'd gone off into theater so I met with Ivan Eyre who was one of my great mentors and a wonderful <coughs> painter in Winnipeg who's not given as much credit as he should he had shows at the National Gallery and he's very internationally known but uh, unfortunately he's he's uh, he has Parkinson's now and he's one of the most amazing graphic art but I sort of so can I talk? He was a very privately reclusive man. I said, "Can I talk to you?" He said, "Okay." Well, I'm here. And I said, "He said, Sure, What? What is it?" And he said, "Well, I said I need advice." And he looked. You know. Anyway, we met and talked. And I said, "I'm really wondering if I wasted my life and my potential." It was as serious as that. So he had that particular book, the blue one I was showing you, and he went through it. You know, I was just dying. It was sort of like the Stephen going through the drawings. I was just dying because his opinion mattered to me and he finished and he said why would you say that these are works of art your costumes are astonishing You're set they're moving and i you've got all these people to help you make your art what's basically i mean i'm not paraphrasing him but he was saying so what's not to love you know mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you're, you're you should not be pulling yourself apart about this mm-hmm. but I was so afraid I'd sort of let someone down and isn't that funny mm-hmm. and I it didn't hit me as much until I came there backed in Winnipeg at the art gallery where we were inducting us and ah uh, you know it, it, something in me just sort of went oh dear mm-hmm. this has been fun but have you know it's I was destroyed mm-hmm. it's never kept ca- so I've gone to a few art galleries and said, "I really think you should display artwork." I think Susan's had something at Stratford at one of their galleries. I've had at the Legacy. I shared a gallery show with Morso, and the work we did at on how it was put on at the National Art Center and a tape and a model and it was really kind of nice. Uh, and all my drawings and all my models and. Um,
0: Cameron Porteus, or Cameron Porteus has had a show that I, I toured, actually, to a couple different venues. Cam? Uh, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it started in Niagara, and then I think it, came, it went someplace else. But yeah, it's the same kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think that kind of thing helps us to legitimize the work. It's still not the same as a separate object sitting there perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, the the charioteer at Delphi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you walk and see that thing, it's it's unique.
0: Well, and also I think, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, oh my goodness, I <clears throat> also wanted to think, uh, say t- as well that, that theater, one of the things um, when we look at a lot of uh, installation artists that have tried to incorporate video or kinetics into their sculpture or um, start to take up whole rooms mm-hmm. with an experience where the audience is immersive. Like, they're trying to capture something that theater does all the time. Which and does well. And does well. And they're trying to incorporate theatricality. I know. And um, almost as if uh, they realize something is missing, or they realize that there is something outside of the static slice of time that they create. And theater is not that. Theater is a temporal art. No matter how, even if it's someone sitting there, you know, in the park and bark thing in a, in a static set, it's still the words and the music and the rhythm and the mm-hmm. tone bring us through it's time. It's
1: repetitive action yeah. unless it's something out, you know, unless it's an invention each night. Yeah.
0: And we can't, uh, you can't recreate it. Or you can't put that in a museum. No. And in fact, I think when, if you put a theatrical piece in a museum, it becomes something different. There's a, it's a different context for that as well. and So it's hard to sort of present the work that way, even though I think it should be.
1: Well, I, I think we can only show the remnants of what our creation was when it was fully embodied, mm-hmm. because I consider what we do embodiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fully in the body of the actors, in the body of the technicians running it, in the body, and, and every night uh, it's embodied. And movement, this is why movement is so important to me, because I think that's something that distinguishes us from it. I have a big problem with a lot of stuff that's happening in the art world these days, and where there's more dialogue about it than the object. And this might be me old, being old-fashioned, I don't know. But, but gallery work, theater work, it's changing beneath our feet as fast as we can go. And My theories, and this is partly because of my earlier experience with computers and my constant study of McLuhan and technology and the ideas of what's going on, is that the last 15, 10 years, maybe, since everyone has a cell phone, we have moved from a three-dimensional universe to a two-dimensional one. And that means the audience, too. Mm -hmm. And although I believe Canada has some absolutely amazing theatrical artists... If the audience isn't their equal, this is what we talked about with collaboration earlier. If you're not collaborating with an equal, you're not collaborating. Mm-hmm. You're adjusting or you're ticking them under the chin or you're trying to make something, but you're not collaborating. Um, and it's the same if your audience isn't. When Mervish wanted to see Bella, this show that I wrote um, with Guthrie Tova about Mark Chagall's wife, he invited us to Toronto for a backers' audition. The backers didn't like us; mm-hmm. like his people didn't. He and his wife loved us; mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't like. It. But um, he gave me tickets. He and Danny Grossman—Danny was the director for this—and mm-hmm. uh, he gave us tickets to Warhorse, mm-hmm. right. right in the front row. Yeah. I was just gobsmacked. Yeah. I was just fascinated. I was Rick McMillan. That's who I was trying to that's remember who was my student at that. But Rick was playing in it. And these this horse, I was in tears when when the baby horse turned into the huge Clydesdale and then charged down into the audience and out. I was crying my eyes out. Two girls beside me who looked about 18 were totally engrossed in, in their cell phones. I said, could you turn that off, please? The light is, why? The light is bothering me. And they were in the second row. They didn't see anything of the show. And I suddenly thought, We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Um, I think about this a lot. I've thought about it ever since I could see the encroachment of the computer and what it does to our brain. I look at brain studies a lot about how things are working because it's our role as designers and directors and, and everyone in theater to know how to reach an audience. And projections don't do it. They're fascinating. But... They're terrible in dance because you don't watch the person. It's not enough to then put the person up on a screen. We could just be sitting in a movie theater. Sorry, I want to hear them breathe. Uh, I might be old-fashioned about that, but I—I I feel we are. It's a—it's our job to explore. Mm-hmm. So, of course, projections will be. I've put projections on some of my, but I've limited them to certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I—I'm—I'm I'm very concerned about how an audience perceives things and how our young theater artists and students are perceiving things. And this also goes into visual arts, because if we just think of ourselves in a flat world, we don't need to have dimension on stage. We don't need to have any of the the wonderful stage tricks of the 16 and 1700s that inspired me to do stag king and to do mandrag and to do they were all because of these mechanical theaters you know you could do things like a puppet Um, and that doesn't mean anyone else has to do that it just means it interested me and we look at our culture we can only design from the culture we're in but we have to know it in order to reach an audience it's not enough to just say I'm fascinated with this design idea or this technical idea or this sonic idea. Somehow it has to be something that's going to reach the audience and change their souls and their minds. And they're certainly paying a lot of money now to go for tickets. So, I mean, it's like, ah!
0: but It is interesting. I just want to stop you for a second. It sure. is interesting that... Um uh, like you we were, you teach a course called Learning to See? No.
1: Ways of Seeing. Ways of Seeing. A tip of the hat to John Berger, the right. great John Berger who just died. Right. Last year, I guess.
0: And I've heard tell of stories of people going to see theater, live theater, three dimensional theater, who see it as two dimensional. That's right. And interact with it in the same way they did react with a film. Yeah, speaking out, talking to their friends, watching on their phone, whatever. They're taking pictures.
1: That's right. And it's interesting, isn't that's what I mean about the audience being trained as well.
0: Well, you, you all, yeah, because you, you, um, like we can look at it and go, well, it's obviously three dimensional. Like it's us. It's obviously three dimensional. But you have to.
1: They're just taking pictures.
0: Yeah, you have to like. It's, it's mediated through the phone. Like, it's why people take videos of constant. Like, why are you taking videos of concerts? Like, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, big concern. It is like, it's, I think we have to at least appreciate the idea that what they're seeing is two dimensional. Even though the visceral those stimulus may be three dimensional, their decoding of it in their brain
1: I might be two dimensional. Yeah, that's interesting because. Maybe intuitively, that's why I've always been trying to burst out of the proscenium, you know, like have the set come out into the audience or have the proscenium or have them out into the boxes or something to say, theater and life, we're, we're sort of connected, mm-hmm. even though we're taking on a trip. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very big concern because it changes sometimes the dialectic in my classes and how I explain things. And we don't have a projection designer patrick dwarves is teaching he's our new hire which mm-hmm. is great he was a former student and and he's intellectually uh, delightful to have around and he's doing wonderful work with the set because i i primarily i just do costumes unless i'm doing a show there right. because when i came uh, there was already a set designer there for years and years and uh, they kind of apologized about hiring me because they said, "We know you're a set designer too." And, but are you okay just doing this? And I said, "My mother's dying. I'm here." You know, mm-hmm. or, well, in that stage she died, but my father was with me and my uncle, and my you know, I had a lot of family responsibility. I said, "Sure, I love teaching, and I do. It's saved my life many a time since I've been out here, because I, um, I'm just so happy to see people's minds open and." find out what their possibilities are. But I do encourage them to really study the cultural mores Mm -hmm. and aspects of their society. And that means to look at the art of the time, the writing of the time, the philosophy, as well as the technical toys and things that are so charming and interesting. And we can, I immediately think, well, you know, I mean, if you're poor, you think, what can I do with cardboard? Well, you're going to think about... Mm -hmm. uh, But that comes to a bit of my concern about how we're developing our artists in this country too because I I feel there's no system in place to help our artists our young artists or our medium-sized artists who are working in smaller theaters to transition to the larger theaters to the opera stages to the we're still hiring too many Americans mm-hmm. and we're still hiring too many British uh, people to run our things. There's a big flat statement that people will yell about, but um, I am concerned about this because I think other countries, I was asking Patrick, I said, what is it like in England? You went and assisted Richard Hudson and a few other people on, on your grants over there. And he said, well, they have a system, it's a real hierarchy, you have to do this you can do that, you can do this you can do that. I'm I mean, I think that's good. I also think if you've already had a background like I've had, you jump in in a different way. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're following a more traditional route, uh, you know, because, good heavens, I'd had 19 years of training with my mother, you know, mm-hmm. and other things. But I'm not quite sure how. To help my students to realize it matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just breaks my heart because it's, I, I'm not sure if we're watching it, waiting on the demise of theater as we know it. And as someone who's always done new and unusual things, that may be fine because something else new and unusual that's different might come. You know, we no longer, I mean, theater started in its most basic form. We all sat around the campfire. We told stories as a tribe and everyone danced, everyone healed, everyone sang And then we start to specialize. Maybe this will make us come back to a collaborative, we're all artists doing something. And we might go through some bumpy periods, so you might not see the couture of theater. Um, I mean, the things that Michael Levine is doing in Europe um, are extremely sophisticated. He's based in London now. And uh, he's such a... He's a theoretician of ideas, a very elegant philosophy. I'm not sure it could happen in many places other than opera or ballet today, Mm -hmm. because they're the last place that has the money and the desire to see things in a more codified manner, even though it's very experimental, the stuff that they can do. Audiences want to come and be curious and have their minds open. I don't really care how it happens. Mine is not the only philosophy or the only way. I might speak about it very confidently and very outgoing, but that's just the nature, my nature of the way I express myself as an artist.
0: Uh, that's great. I think we'll leave it there. Okay. That was set and costume designer Mary Kerr speaking to me from her home in Victoria, BC in December of 2018. Next time I chat, I promise, with lighting and live event designer Robert Sondergaard. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at The Titleblock CA and on Facebook.com slash The Titleblock Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please go support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you figure out well, how we're all going to get through this ridiculous time. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. What is remarkable to me is that to a person, they are still optimistic about the, the ability of theater to move people, to tell a story in a way that is not like any other storytelling media, and the ability to solve problems. And I think that the kind of creative thinking that theater people do, that theater training gives you, mm-hmm. um, gives me hope, uh, obviously, I'm not in the business anymore. So, my hope—I changed my hope. I've changed my the, my path. But those who continue to strive in theater are um, thinking about ways to make a difference. and Thinking about ways to telling stories that compel people to change.